the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. And I have got a great, great lineup for you today from the band Def Leppard. May we? We love our Def Leppard. It is a guitarist, Phil Collin. We talk, uh, well, everything pretty much. Uh, Las Vegas residency, working with Tesla on their new album, um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and uh, so much more. And then after that, from, or formerly from, the Billy Joel Band, I sit down with drummer Liberty DeVito. We talk about that, the movie Hired Guns, some projects that he's working on now, a little bit of the legal dispute that went on with Billy, just an incredible, incredible hour with uh, Liberty, just all kinds of great stuff. And then I will bookend it with Anders Frieden, or Frieden from the band In Flames out of Sweden. Their new album is I, The Mask, so I, The Mask. And I had a chance to see them in a concert recently in Montreal. And it was, of course, uh, well, incredibly sold out, quite frankly. Uh, I, I didn't expect to see as many people. I believe the count was something like 1,800 out of 1,800. So thus being sold out. But just an incredible energy at that show. And, of course, to discuss Billy Joel, Tesla, Def Leppard, uh, his love of uh, everything dark metal is the one, the only, the affable, and our Arizona native, Alan Niven. Bonjour, Sir Alain. Uh, bonjour, Monsieur. A very fun is very a comer uh, in flames. Yes, yes, le, le in flames. It is uh, en flamme, en flamme. No, um, yeah. but but like, yeah. Where about in Sweden? Do they come from? You can come from somewhere in Sweden, isn't it? Just. Sweden? Well, yes. I mean, are you from Göteborg? <laughs> are you from Stockholm? Are you from Örebro? Malmo? From, they are uh, from... Ekostuna? Um, they're, they're from a little enclave on the uh, southern coast called Ikea. It's the Isle of ah. Ikea. Yes, it is It is a, a gorgeous place. I have been myself. Uh, what's interesting is that they put arrows on the road there, and it points you to, as to where to go. It's, it's a fascinating, fascinating um, city. Right. No? Close enough? Well, I, I'm, I'm kind of fond of Scandinavia. I think it's a, uh, um, an intelligent part of the world. Um, well, being Danish... Decent, yeah. There's a sense of decency there that is lacking in so many other places these days. And, uh, you know, I kind of like the Scandinavians. I do, too. And in fact, uh, I was just looking at a report that was put out by either the United Nations or, or one of these in things. And it said the best places that for female workers and the top 10. And, and I don't have the list in front of me, but it was Sweden, Norway, Finland, Iceland, Denmark. Now, I don't know if all of them are Scandinavian. I think they are. But those yep. were all the countries that say they treat female workers the best. And, and by the best, they meant conditions for uh, pregnancy leave, for salary, for uh, child care. I mean, just everything. And it's just amazing. And that, that's what I've noticed with, with Scandinavia. There's an, equality, there's an equality for the fair agenda under the law in these countries, too. And for all. And, and for all, they, yeah. they really are a humanitarian, egalitarian society. And that, that's not to, to start pontificating about politics and stuff. It's just called 
discussing decency. And when you go to Denmark, and I've been to Denmark 12, 13, 14 times, Sweden as well, there really just is a happiness. You can you can sort of see people walking around with with a, a joie de vivre, as we say. Well, it's a little hard to have a joie de vivre when it's minus 25 degrees in the winter, but especially if you go in the summer. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, um, I've been to, to Copenhagen over the years for Christmas for family. And even though it'll say one Celsius or zero Celsius, it is not the same as minus 20 in Montreal. It is so humid that it just gets right through you. And I, I would prefer a dry minus 20 than the, than the Danish plus one. And conversely, though, the summer's Boy, end of June with the sun going down at whatever it is, 1130 at night, midnight, and it's, you know, 28 degrees outside. Ah, gorgeous, gorgeous. But, but we are here to talk rock and roll and not do a uh, weather network report. So, Phil Collin of Def Leppard, your favorite band. Uh, I wouldn't say that, but, you know, um, I I have enjoyed and do enjoy... Um, their records uh, i wouldn't say that they're um intellectually or spiritually challenging but they sound really good um they're really good ear candy and you know phil's a really good player and uh, he's one of those iron men of rock and roll um i believe he's vegan uh, i believe he's a black belt uh, at some martial arts former martial arts um uh, and I suspect he works out like a monster, um, determined to keep his body young and fresh and clean, which is uh, a smart call. Yeah, that considering that they were the terror twi- the, the terror twins back in the 80s, known for uh, boozing and whatever else. But uh, it's yeah. interesting because yesterday um, I was walking through the forest with the dog and, and uh, your, your friend Mr. Zutat called, Tom Zutat, and... He was like, oh, who have you had on as a guest recently? And I said, oh, uh, you know, Tracy Guns. And went into these long stories about Brides of Destruction. And then I said, oh, Phil Collin. And he went into this long story about uh, Def Leppard. Now, nothing that I can share, but it's not, not publicly, but it was just, it was interesting to get the inside little scoop on some of these bands. Uh, and, and by the way, not sharing doesn't mean it's negative stuff. It's just, you know, it's a private conversation and say that way. But um, it's just funny to, 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 to have these moments of people calling in and, and, and talking about these bands that we that I grew up loving. Now, of course, uh, Phil Collin has produced the new Tesla album called Shock. And uh, the first review I said, the first review I read uh, was a very short review and I forgot who wrote it. I saw it online the other day and they said Phil Collins produces new Tesla album Shock. It sounds like Def Leppard. Not shock, <laughs> uh, and I thought that was I thought that was brilliant. Now you know, listen, um, I don't know if that's a criticism or, or if you can take that as a criticism. I've heard the record; it does have a bit of a a Def Leppard kind of hysteria, euphoria, not euphoria, what was it? Adrenalized kind of shuffle to it, but. You know, you you could easily say the same thing that a Mutt Lang album has a Mutt Lang sound or a Bob Ezrin album has a Bob Ezrin sound. So to say that a Phil Collins produced album has sort of a ear candy, you know, Def Leppard, right? It sort of seems like, well, 
yeah, why wouldn't it? That's what he knows, right? <laughs> right? Well, yes. And, you know, there's, there's many forms of production. There are those producers who have an ability or a knack or an instruction to really concentrate on the chemistry of the band that they have. And there are producers who have their way of doing things. Um, and you get a, a more um, defined thumbprint from the producer. Bottom line is, is, has it got great energy? Are there really cool songs? Are there some good guitar tones? Um, are you going to want to turn it up if you've got it in your car? Are you going to have a good time with it? I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. And, you know, Phil's not a bad songwriter. I mean, I remember there was a, uh, um, an album called The Law. Um, and one of my favorite songs on that, Miss You in a Heartbeat. And, uh, you know, when I bothered to look to see who, uh, the producer, who, who the writer was, I was intrigued to see it was Phil Collins. And Miss You in a Heartbeat, especially in the days where on the, uh, I remember specifically on the 96 tour, they had turned over the mic for Phil to sing it. And that was sort of the, the epic moment of, of those shows. You know, you'd hear the pour some sugar on me and yada, yada, yada done by Joe. And obviously I love it. But then Phil would come out and you go, oh, there's a revelation. There's a surprise. There's something we haven't heard. Anyway, uh, the new Tesla song or the recent Tesla song that came out, uh, the album is, of course, out on, well, in fact, uh, yesterday, March 8th. Um, but the new single is California Summer Song. And it really is one of those where you just roll down the windows. Uh, and if you have a sunroof, you put it back. And it's a laid back California easy listening kind of tune but uh, without further ado yes sir you're going to say something no ah i i i thought i heard some uh, some some thoughts but i heard here you go. Oh, uh, without no god forbid if i start thinking i get a headache <laughs> i had a i had a um a, a mother of a girlfriend years ago you know back when i was 18 and anytime you would do something or would think about something she'd look at you and go see what thought did don't think. <laughs> she was a Scottish lady, and she goes, "See what thought did and with a with a thick Scottish accent. See what thought did." Uh, anyway, uh, without further ado, here is the one, the only, one of my favorites, guitarist Phil Collin. We are speaking with Def Leppard guitarist Phil Collin. Uh, so much. Uh, happening in the world of uh, Def Leppard these days. We've got a Canadian tour. Phil has produced a new Tesla album, Shock. There is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, just so many, so many, uh, the, the the residency in Vegas. So many things, Phil. So let's let me get let me get started with a quick hello, bonjour, comment allez-vous? Hello, bonjour. Bonjour, bonjour. So let, let's get started here with March 29th. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction is coming up in New York. Um, talk to me a little bit about getting in there because, you know, melodic hard rock bands or, or mm -hmm. melodic bands from from Motley Crue to Foreigner to, you know, they're not getting in. Bon Jovi got in. You guys are getting in. Talk to me about, about what took so long and just what does the honor mean to you? Well, it, um, it's got nothing to do with um, fans. I mean, they've got a fan vote now that they count as one vote. And, and we overwhelmingly had more fan votes than the, any other artists that they've had since they've started that kind of process. So um, 
that was great. It was great to know our fans are ravenous and rabid and, and they're at the best. So that was really super cool. Um, it's the way it's set up, and I'm not surprised a lot of those bands are not in it because it's, it's done purely on, you know, tastemakers, ratings, stuff like that. It's, it's not really, you know, people voting. You know, if it was just on that, it'd be it'd be a different story completely. But um, so that's why you don't see those bands in there. You know, you'd see someone else who, who would kind of supposedly uh, have a cool factor that gets them in. So that that kind of takes that kind of takes some of the uh, fun away from from me personally. I think it's great because once you do get in, um, everything kind of changes. You know, you get a little bit more. Um, for some reason, everyone takes it seriously. They they go, oh, the rock and roll of fame. It must be, it must be okay. It's like condoned or something. So um, and then other other things start happening for you. So that's that's really good. But uh, personally, I'm not I'm not really kind of you know I don't like award ceremonies. I don't really like all that stuff. Um, I like the idea that we're going to be playing live. That's that's really good because that's that's what we do. So um, I am looking forward to that part. I gotta say. Yeah, that's going to be spectacular. Now, of course, a lot of talk about original guitarist Pete Willis. What is sort of his stature for the ceremony? Is is he going to be there? Does he deserve to be there? And of course, as a fan, I would say yes, he does. Um, what sort of that? What's going on with him and in this induction ceremony? Yeah, well, we invited him. Obviously, he should be there. You know, he's in the band, and it's um, really important part of it. You know, some of these songs that we were playing. I mean, you know, when I joined the band. All, all the stuff, all the rhythm guitars and stuff had been done. He'd done it, him and Steve Clark. And I just played lead guitar over the top of it. You know, all the stuff on, on Pyromane, that photograph, Rock to Your Drop, Rock of Ages, you know, full, all of that stuff. So, um, yeah, he's, he's definitely part of it. So, um, yeah, I don't know whether it will come or not. You know, that's you know, down to him, really. But, yeah, it would be good. It would be, it would be stunning. Now, uh, a lot of the bands from your era... Uh, are playing to diminishing returns. They're playing clubs. They're 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 playing smaller festivals and stuff. What is it about Def Leppard that has kept you in arenas and has kept you in sheds and and keep going out with massive tours like you did last year with Journey and Stadiums? What is it about the band? Is it just is it just come does it just come down to songs? Partly, you know, there's a, there's a kind of attitude that goes with that as well. I mean, you know, we had two diamond albums you know that's that's huge there's only other what five other bands it's like the beatles zeppelin um the eagles van halen and pink floyd and us they're the only two bands in america that have had two diamond albums and it kind of it, it's kind of reflected a little bit in canada it's the same kind of thing um that really helps obviously that that was down to mutt langer he, you know telling us the difference between being an ordinary band and, and something that's more extraordinary, you know, that, that you could, um, that you, you have to work harder. You have to, you have to be, the songs have to be better. They have to sound better. They have to sound different from everyone else. So all of these things, uh, made us different. And, and, you know, he, he was a big component to that in Mark Lang because he, it was, we wouldn't have been this good if it wasn't for him. And, um, so when you put on a Def Leppard record, it, it sounds different. Not only does it sound, you know, the song sound like it does, but, you know, the sound, you know, a lot of people try to emulate the sound. So, you know, there's, a, there's an originality. You know, when you hear a Queen song, you know, it's Queen automatically. So that's something we were kind of going for. You know, we were actually trying to be, Queen was a bit of a blueprint, actually. And, and we, we kind of, 
use that as a very kind of significant kind of con concept really that 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 kind of thing um so that's one of the reasons and i think that the team you know it's like you know our management like kobayashi and, and and everyone pushing so hard and working really hard and that's the difference you know and being prepared to do things that other bands are not you know it's uh, I, I see so many bands they they fall to pieces their egos get bruised and and stuff like that and then you see someone else say like us or, or i'll give you a great example you know we, we've toured with with Sticks, REO, Tesla for years. And um, they all travel on the bus, They're like maybe one bus together. They all get on, they make it happen. And they'll get up, they'll play a shed, they'll play a casino, they'll play whatever it takes. And they're usually sold out and they, they usually do that. And, and, and it's a it's a, a spirit. It's, like, it's, it's kind of like a, a working kind of thing. And I, I do know a lot of bands who don't do that. And then they're playing in a, a tiny little bar somewhere you know you i drove past you know we've been in oklahoma and you, you see a sign up for someone who, who used to be a you know multi-platinum artist and they just don't put the same amount of effort in and i think that's that's it in a nutshell it's just that you either you up for it or you're not <clears throat> yeah i agree and and it's funny that you mentioned mutt because my interview right after you is with bob clear mountain and i'm going to be talking all about his work with mutt so that's did, by the way did you ever work with bob clear mountain no, we didn't. No, oh. no, that's that's amazing because because Mutt and Bob are sort of like the A team, right? I mean, they're they're, they're the one-two punch. Um, let me quickly here get over to Tesla. You mentioned Tesla. Um, talk to me about sort of that that relationship with a band because it, it's sort of like the big brother and the baby brother. And I mean, no no disrespect to Tesla, of course, but but you've been sort of hand in hand going all the way back to the Hysteria tour. You, you've brought them out many times. Now you're producing their new album, Shock. Uh, before we get into producing and Shock, what is it about Tesla? Because it is a competitive business, and yet there hasn't been that sense of, we're going to bar you from tours. We're going to make your life miserable. It, instead, it's been, yeah, we're two bands together putting together these great packages. Right. Um, with, with Tesla, you know, I mean, I've been a fan of them for years. I mean, me, Steve Clark and, and Rick Allen played with them on their first European tour, which was 86. We, we jumped up on stage at this place called the Paradiso in Amsterdam. And, uh, and we've been friends ever since. So, um, I, I'd done a song, you know, a, a couple of years ago. Um, this was, uh, it was going to be a Delta Deep song. And, and Brian Wheat said, oh man, that, that should be the Tesla and you should produce it. So we did. It was called Save That Goodness. We had so much fun doing it. Um, and when it was time to do their album, they said, you know, would you be up for doing that? And I said, absolutely. So what's really weird is because I've known them as friends and, and, and a kick-ass band as well. This is the other thing. You know, they, they, you know, they toured us and then been with us for years. And we're like, you know, I'm standing on the edge of the stage. and going, you guys are so amazing live. This is, this is incredible. You should be doing more. So um, again, so they've just kind of... Um, broaden their horizons i mean when the, the songs we wrote on this album was was kind of very different to what they'd done before and and we all you know just dived into it kind of head first it's like let's just make something that's inspired inspired not just by ourselves and each other but by by stuff from our, our greatest you know influences you know whether it be you know, zeppelin the who queen the stones you you, you name it you know we, we kind of dug in really deep with that stuff 
and and we we kind of um and, and so that's we we made an album like that. It was like okay, make this classic album but with kind of modern technology and modern sounds. We've done a lot of the stuff while we were on tour. We've done I think nearly all of the guitars while we were on tour together. You know, we just kind of go in a back room somewhere, or you know, a, a bunker or a, you know backstage room or you know whatever, and, and just record the stuff. And that that was really exciting because you you would actually you know you'd get the inspiration you'd be able to go go in and record it immediately so um that really worked so, so that that was really cool about it and the, but the fact that they you know they had the uh faith in me to actually you know do this and i, I think once we finished you know the songs and, and you know jeff you know jeff sung great we had, we had a, a period at the end about a two-week period just after he'd got off tour and everything and his voice was just primed and he was just good to go and, and and so with these special things that doesn't always happen you know sometimes you get someone uh, you know they're, they're, they're sick or something like that and they're not really kind of up to it. he was like really on top of the world when we actually started doing his, his vocals and so we uh it went really quick towards towards the end there it was really really cool so yeah lots of things about it, it was very inspiring and the whole process we loved it yeah it was a, it's a great process now now the album sounds um what's the word i, I want to say slick it sounds a lot you know it sounds a little more polished than what tesla has done in the past is that you sort of bringing in a, a sort of deaf leopard sort of point of view to it or was the band themselves saying hey you know what we really want to sort of you know smooth out the rough edges and make this more of a poly where did the sound come from because the first couple of songs band said well that sounds sort of sounds like tesla doing deaf leopard which is a great compliment if you ask me um where where did that sort of come from? Who sort of decided what's the sound going to be like? Well, you, you can really do an ordinary album, and like I said with, with Mutt, and this this isn't about trying to you know smooth off the rough edges or anything like that. When you're writing a song and and you're 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 getting into it, you, you know you can, all those bands we talked about that are kind of playing bars and stuff like that. That isn't inspiring. But what is inspiring is Queen or you know, some of the Def Leppard, you know, the the Beatles, Pink Floyd, you know, the, these albums sound different. They sound, and, and they, dare I say it, slicker. And there's a reason for that. It's not them trying to be slick. It's because you're, you're putting more into it. If you want to do a live album and just go and bang it out, that's one thing. But if you want to actually go broader and, and kind of go into a little bit deeper, it ends up sounding like this. You know, you kind of you're doing backing vocals you know some of these songs have got like you know mandolins and piano on them you know i've got a friend of mine scott wilkie who's this incredible jazz pianist he plays on the song uh, uh we can rule the world he's he, my friend he just uh he said we've done it like two years ago um so all of these things you, they, they end up you know making it sound different and i think that's it you know it's not like we're trying to make it slick you know you, it's just you're not playing live. You're actually trying to, you know, hone in on on each kind of individual sound and make it the best it can be. And uh, that ends up, you know, a lot of people say, well, that that kind of sounds slick. To me, it actually sounds great. You know, it's like that, that's what you're trying to make it sound great instead of just just banging it out. So that that's that's where the difference comes, I think. Yeah, it really does. Uh, just real quick, the the band is going to be on a Canadian tour and. Uh... 
Well, you've got three here that I'm looking at that I would love to go to, uh, uh, Quebec, uh, Montreal, and Ottawa. But talk to me about this Canadian tour, because a lot of bands announce North American tours or Canadian tours, and they go play Toronto. And in fact, a band yesterday announced a North American tour that includes no Canadian dates and no Mexican dates, which I thought was kind of amusing. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at that and I went, uh, you're missing something here. But but just talk to me about this relationship with Canada, because when you get to, and I've seen you here, obviously, when you get to a place like Quebec City or in Montreal, and I've seen you all around the States, and so, the, there's a palpable difference in the crowd reaction, at least from my perspective. There, there seems to be like an extra level of enthusiasm, not to put down other cities, but what is it with this city or this country that makes the Def Leppard able to do an entire month of July? Um, well, you actually said it right there. One of the two major places in the world that we get the best reaction is Montreal. So it's Mexico City and Montreal. We get, every time we go in there, it's like, whoa, we can't believe it. So there's a, I guess that they get it. They just really, you know, really, really super enjoy it, you know, in, as much as we do and and it, it's apparent you know we um we we done this uh festival a couple of years ago in, in quebec city and, and that that was same deal it was just like this this passion that you don't really see anywhere else so i can't really explain it i think you know it'd be you'd be able to explain more than i would so i because yeah, you know, you're up there so no, yeah. it's, it's just strange because I, I remember specifically in 96 on the slang tour, the band was having, you, you know, there was some sort of some diminishing returns at some venues. And then you got into the Bell Center or the Molson Center at the time, absolutely sold out. You even recorded it and put out some some of the songs on B-sides. And it was just like, oh, you know, I saw you at different venues and I was like, oh, there's Def Leppard. And then I saw you at that show and it was like, oh, it's as if the Beatles just showed up. It, it was it was spectacular. Yeah, I, I think we, we get the same thing. We get the same feelings, as, as especially Montreal. I mean, it's like, it's in, it's incredible. And I, I don't know what that is, because people have asked me that, and it's like, I, I have no idea. Something in the water? I, I really don't know. Yeah, it really is. Uh, just real quick, the, uh, the residency in Vegas, uh, talk to me in a more also general um, aspect of doing residencies. How does it sort of change... Uh, the band's preparedness, you know, you, you get to sort of sit in the same hotel or the same house for a couple of weeks. You don't have to be on the bus or the plane or the moving. Uh, does it change the regiment? And and are you forced to play songs that you haven't played before? Or can you get away with, hey, this is a greatest hit show and just enjoy it? We could do that. I mean, that, that's what it's billed as and, and that's what a lot of people would like. We are going to, however, put the odd thing in there the odd deep cut because we did that last time and it actually went down a storm i, I don't know whether we'll do the the whole dead flat bird thing but we we are gonna you know rehearse a pool of songs so that we can change them up every night and the great thing about being somewhere like that is that you can like a vegas residency band really like you know like even back in the day you know when they, when they had like big band and you know sinatra and so they go okay tonight we're gonna we're gonna change it we're gonna do this you know a really good year or something and then the guys would rehearse there because they'd be there they wouldn't have to be traveling so that's really cool you know if we decide like in a couple of nights we're going to play stage fright for example you know we could go in we can rehearse it and and, and do stuff like that. and it gives you a little bit more uh leeway of, of of kind of 
you know, the stuff there's not so much pressure as, as stuff and and you can you know songs may get played that wouldn't have done otherwise that's the great thing about a residency and it's a totally different feeling we've only ever done it once you know and that was in vegas and um it it felt more theatrical it felt like you were actually doing a theatrical performance as opposed to just being a band on stage. And we were, obviously we were doing Hysteria in its, its entirety that time, but um, it, it really had a different feel about it. And, and that was cool, the fact that you can be in, in this industry for 30-odd years and all of a sudden say, well, we're going to do something really refreshing, brand new, but it's the same, but it's different. You know, that, that was kind of weird, but, but in a good way, it was great. Yeah, it really was. Um, a lot has been made in the media these days of of a band that's currently on a farewell tour using backing tracks. Nikki Six has come out and said, yes, Motley Crue has used backing tracks. Of course we have. It's cheaper th- than bringing out an entire orchestra. What is sort of your perspective on backing tracks? And is, is it more of an enhancement or is it cheating? And, and what sort of Def Leppard's take on the use of them? Well, it depends on what you're talking about. I mean, we've always used like keyboard things and, you know, parts of a drum loop like on Rocket. You know, that's, you, you, you couldn't really play that part live. So we, we've we used stuff like that, but our vocals are always live. And that's the big difference. You know, we, we are like a, a, a live vocal band. And, um, and that's something that... Um, a lot of the other bands don't do, you know, they actually, they, they kind of fake the vocals and it's, it's not really them, but this is, this is really us. So we are a real live band. You could actually throw us in, you know, we do acoustic stuff. It's, it's real. All the vocals are real. Everything's totally hundred percent real. So, um, it's that I, I do believe with like, you know, with, with some of the other artists, like, you know, if it's Beyonce, Rihanna, you know, even Taylor Swift now, it's, uh, they, they have a different kind of, they have to play to tracks. They, they really do. And, and sometimes if you're on a TV show, like if you're doing, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how the, how the Super Bowl thing works, but you know, if you've only got, you know, three, three minutes, 12 seconds before they start going to commercial, sometimes that they would prefer if you used, uh, uh, you know, a whole lip sync thing. That's a different thing. But for live concerts, you know, we're, we're really up for actually really playing live. And that's something we've always done. Yeah, which is great. That separates us from everyone else as well. You know, it's like you're really going to hear the real stuff. You know, someone's got a a, a bad throat that night, you're going to hear it, you know. Yeah, and but I mean, I I do think that there is some room for it in the industry because when you're paying $150 a ticket, you don't want to go see a train wreck. You sort of want to walk out of there feeling satisfied. So I can sort of understand uh, the need to make it as you know, perfect as sure. possible. It's not, Absolutely. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's yeah, nothing. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. We, I mean, like I said, we, we just don't, we just do it really live. That's the, that's the thing. I, I, I agree with you. I actually think I'd rather go and see someone and I've done, I've seen loads of bands and they've, they've used enhancements or they've used something where they can't, you know, it, it, you can't get the real thing because the real person's not there. You know, like take Queen, for example, you know, you, you Queen are amazing. You know, I've seen them. I saw them as an opening act. I saw them, you know, supporting Mott the Hoople in, in London years ago. And um, right up to now, and, and uh, Brian obviously is going to induct us into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Brian May. So um, that's amazing. But, you know, if you go and see them at all, that you, you have to have enhancements just the, the way these these shows are. So I agree with you there. It's just that, yeah, we, 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 have, we don't really do that. 
But Good. like I said, you know, we do with the keyboards and stuff like that, but the vocal thing is, and the guitars, it's, it's really real. Good. That, that's great news. Now, uh, of course, in uh, 2018, you did the uh, uh, G3 tour with Joe Satriani and John Petrucci. Uh, you also have Man Rays, Delta Deep. What are the chances of you, or is there a desire to have a solo album? We know Vivian did one a couple of years, well, a couple of years back, like 10 years ago at this point. Uh, but but is that something that would interest you to do a guitar, I'm going to call it a guitar nerd kind of, you know, uh, is that something, an instrumental Phil Collin album, is that something that interests you? Um, I've actually already started that because I was going to do a, a Delta Deep album. You know, so I think what I was going to do is just uh, have a combination of all the different things I'm into, including guitar instrumental stuff, of which I've got two songs already. Um, and I think I'm going to going to do that at some point. Oh. Yeah, the solo album. So it'd be me singing. It'd be just me doing everything I ever do. Oh, that'll be great. So, so just quickly talk to me about Man Rays and Delta D, more on the sense of having a chance to sort of step outside the Def Leppard bubble and just be a different artist and show a different side of yourself to fans. Is, is that important? Does that keep you refreshed to come back to Def Leppard with new ideas? Or is it just something that you have to do for the fun of it? I think it's amazing. I actually, I think both. Um, we, we were actually, you know, doing some, you know, Debbie was doing some some backing vocals the other day, and and some stuff that Joe was working on as well, and we, we kind of do it together, and it's so exciting. It just it takes you 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 do stuff that you wouldn't normally do. You know, like the like as a Delta Deep was way different. Actually, so was Man Rays. You know, the fact that I was you know the lead singer in that, and and I had to become you know a lead singer that plays guitar as opposed to a lead guitarist that, that does backing vocals. It was very different, and, and yet it was a different headspace. You know, I'd, I'd be like forgetting lyrics all the time, which I do. I'm famous for forgetting lyrics, but you know, even stuff that I've written, I'm like completely blank out. And I, if I kind of start, you know, thinking about something else or, you know, concentrating on the guitar playing, I completely forget that I was supposed to be seen. So it's, it's kind of, that was funny. So that was a really great thing for me to, to, to be able to do that. Now I can get up and, you know, and, and sing and play, you know, I, which I did, you know, I got, got to sing with Jeff Beck, you know, I got, got up there and it's like, Phil, you know, the words for superstition. It's like, yeah, okay. So, you know, I, in Japan, you know, I got to sing and play guitar with Jeff Beck, which was awesome, you know, and, and I actually do lead vocals on, um, in the state love song, you know, by, um, Stone Temple Pilots with, with Robert and Dean DeLeo, which was amazing. You know, it's, so things like that are, are, are just just amazing, and it just keeps broadening your your horizons and your your kind of what you can actually do or what you can achieve. So uh, yeah, I, I love that fact. It, it makes everything else better, and it makes the the when you get back into the Def Leppard kind of camp, it makes that better than it was before. So absolutely, it really does. Now, uh, recently I interviewed Phil Lewis. Of course, you were in a band with him, Girl. Um, talk to me about those early days, real quick, because. You know, here here's this band in 1979. You're sort of competing against the punk scene, and yet you're not a punk band necessarily. Um, what was it like for those early days? And, and talk to me about that conversation you had when you know Phil goes off to Torme and you go off to Def Leppard. Um, was it sad to sort of put Girl down? Because when you listen back to the albums, there was a lot of really good stuff, especially on Sheer Greed. A lot of good stuff going on there. Yeah, that was a great album. I, I think um, what 
we, we didn't have a mentor. We didn't have a Matt Langer around us. If so, if we'd have had someone like that, a producer, we would kind of just uh, flying by the seat of our pants. We, we had no clue what, what was happening. Even even as a, as a band, we were stuck somewhere between, you know, post-punk, hard rock and glam rock. And so it was like, yeah, is this New York Dolls? Is this, what, what is it? And, and we really needed someone to, to kind of help us with that and also help us with our, you know, performance part, you know, the singing and the playing, you know, I always say, you know, the, the, Matt Langer taught us how to sing, taught us how to play our instruments. You know, we, we, we thought one thing before we met him and, you know, after we, we left and after we'd done those albums, it, it was a whole different ball game. We, we were like serious musicians after that. And, um, that was down to him. So we never really had that in, in girl. And I think that in a nutshell, that was the problem. It was, we needed a musical mentor, that was actually, yeah, basically a producer that was actually you know, guys, you know, this, this isn't right. Or let's do this, this way. And, and then it, then you can get your point across because well, it was, um, well, I was going to yeah, say, was, you, you, did, you did have a young Chris Tancredi's doing it though. I mean, he, he of course went on with, uh, priest and, 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 yeah. mode and tigers but of Pantang. That's different to a Matt Langer who, who, of course. who kind of, you know, who, who, who kind of, kind of can, create a whole new kind of music, you know, and, and kind of use different hybrids and stuff. You know, you could actually say, well, let's do this country thing. Or, you know, I, I learned this when I was growing up in Africa and you, all these different things and different musical uh, styles and, and, and things that, you know, Chris, God bless him. He was awesome and everything, but it was, it was a rock thing. And, and we needed someone that, that, that was, that, that, you know, like I said, a real mentor and a, a kind of a Matt Langer thing. And then that was the problem. Looking back on Girl, we we never had that. We done really well. Phil Phil and Jerry Laffey um, really had this great idea and everything. It just needed some help to to you know formulate and then kind of kind of get to its apex. And and it didn't really do that. We didn't have that chance, unfortunately. Yeah, and 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 to be fair to to what you're saying and to Chris, uh, just because you're a great producer doesn't necessarily mean that you're great with every band. And just because you're a great band doesn't, you know, you know there, there, there's that chemistry and that magic that you find. Uh, since you mentioned Mutt a couple of times, and we are running out of time here, um, you haven't worked with him in God two decades. <laughs> is, is there a well, chance? I have. Well, you I, have. I, I have. Yeah, I, I, I've done some guitar stuff on a, on an album that he was working on. Um, eight years ago, yeah. But 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 talk to me about that because here's a band, here's a producer that was locked in with a band. I mean, you and Mutt are a team as much as any other produce, you know, producer band team that you. I, I understand that you had to step away at some point and go do, but has there ever been this urge to go back and say, "Listen, we created this magic thirty years ago. Let's let's give this can another kick. Let's let's try." Would he, would it work? I, he, he just got so busy. We just got so busy. It takes so long to, to do something because you have to, it's like a discovery and, and he would have to rediscover us all again and just to see where we're at and where it could go. I think it may t- be too long winded and frustrating for, for certainly for him. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't I don't even know where he's, where his head's at with, you know what he wants to achieve musically at the moment you know he um he always was was the perfect hybrid you know he'd kind of like i said you know infuse all these different um genres of music in there and he, he kind of knew about all of them and, you know he's always the best singer in the room I, you, you put him on a microphone 
he'll nail it first take. He can do anything. And it's like, wow. So you, you've got this amazing talent. And, um, you, you know, it's, it, it sometimes I, I don't know. I just don't know where he's at. And I, it may slow him down. We, we get in a room and it'd be like I said, at a discovery. So oh, this is where we are now. He would want to cre- create something brand new. He wouldn't want to go back and do the old, same old, same old. He'd say, if we're going to do something, it has to be this. And that's the, the stuff that takes the kind of energy and, and effort. And that's the, the bit that, that that's always a bit, well, it's, that's not just getting up and recording. That's that's working on a concept of something and then taking it to another level. So, yeah, yeah I mean, maybe the odd song or something would be cool, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. I'd, yeah. I'd love it. Obviously, he's, 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 last time I worked with him, he would he was way better than what he was before. It's like it, it, you don't even think that, but his, his talent had kind of improved. It was like, geez, this is crazy. Yeah, and and sometimes you just catch lightning in a bottle, and and it is what it is. And uh, just real quick, uh, I'll finish on this because we are running out of time. Uh, on your recent, uh, what is it? The story so far, the best of you covered, of course, personal Jesus, the Depeche Mode song. Uh, just talk to me about that pick because, you know, fans would expect, well, they're going to do a Queen song. But Def Leppard has never been afraid to take chances. Uh, you know, for example, we talked about the Slang album, which I love from top to bottom. I think All I Want Is Everything is one of the greatest songs you don't play live, unfortunately. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but but yeah. talk to me about about not giving... Well, that, no, that sounds negative. But but not doing what is expected of a hard. I mean, you didn't do the Queen cover or the Led Zeppelin cover. You went with Depeche Mode. The cover sounds great, and it, it's it really is. You know, just just talk to me about that choice and and being a band that sets out its own course. Um, I get, you know what I was just saying about Matt about you know just different genres and bringing it in. A lot of rock musicians are kind of narrow-minded. They only listen to rock music. They only know about that. And they're, they're kind of, there's a big, mm-hmm. massive world out there full of other stuff that people are interested in other things. And uh, we're more like that, you know, and they keep going back to Queen and, and, and Matt Langer and just kind of, you know, broadening your horizons and opening things up. Um, the Queen stuff was was way over the top. It was, it was like, you know, it was opera. It was the Beatles. It was Zeppelin. It was everything mixed up and that that was wonderful um when, when we did the spotify session in new york uh they said oh, we we traditionally do a band's cover of one of their hits which was this area we did and and something else and we went through this list and it was really uninspired for, from us I, I, I was looking at the list i'm like oh man this is this is kind of lame and then ronan McHugh, our sound guy who also records this all the time always plays personal Jesus when he's setting the PA up. So we hear it every day. And then Fizz said, hey, what about personal Jesus? That's, that's a good song. We could, everyone went, great, sold, done. And it was that quick. It was, it was something that, that would work, that we all liked, that, that we hear all the time, that, that, that has a vibe to it. You know, I love the story about Depeche Mode, the fact that, you know, they talk about soldiering on there, that they're the same, you know, it's kind of the same as us. They play sold out crowds all around the world and it's and it's great you know and they're, they're not kind of um current or anything so but they everyone loves them and, it, and it's great so there was a, a similarity there that we, we thought oh, okay there's more than just this song and the more than the fact that we just hear it in sound check every day it, there's there's a there's a connection between the two bands you know so um yeah. so it was a lots of reasons so that that it worked and and that was just a few of them. So it was, it, it, in that case, it was the obvious choice. You know what I mean? 
as oh. opposed to a lot of the, the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it was a great choice. It was a great surprise as well. And uh, on that, we are, we are out of time. I will uh, hopefully get to see you in uh, Montreal and or Ottawa and or Quebec. I'm I'm planning my summer to get there. But uh, perfect. Merci perfect. beaucoup, and uh, always always a pleasure. And uh, congratulations on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You are one of those bands that I've always felt is deserving. And uh, voila. Thank you. Merci beaucoup. Thank you. Bonsoir. Bye bye. Thanks. Cheers. Bonsoir. Bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. And a big thank you to Phil Collin of Def Leppard. Of course, the band is touring Canada coast to coast in July with a Tesla opening up. And I hope to be at three shows, Quebec, Montreal, and Ottawa. But we will see. It always depends. But in July, just before they get to uh, Def Leppard gets to here, um, I will be at the Billy Joel show in um Madison Square Garden in New York, which is very, very exciting. And of course, uh, from that band or formerly from that band is drummer Liberty DeVito. We uh, had a nice sit down chat for an hour. He went through absolutely everything. And we also focused a little bit on the album Stormfront because it was one produced by Mick Jones. And during the interview, he reveals who from an 80s rock band or from actually 70s classic era metal band was tapped to be the producer, but for some reason, and he explains the reason, it didn't work out. But uh, Mr. Niven, rebonjour. Um, were you a, a Billy Joel fan? Did you did you like what he do? You like what he does? Do you like his sort of presentation of of or his version of of rock? That's uh, you know I can't confess that you know th- th- there's an awful lot of things that can make my toe tap. Um, but I never really connected with Billy Joel. Uh, it was, uh, I don't know, I don't know if it was the voice, the appearance, uh, his content, but I, n- I never really got a strong bond with his his output. That said, I really loved We Didn't Light the Fire, and I love the fact that he took a political stance and uh, made a comment or two. And I, re- I really, I really dug that. I thought that was cool. Yeah, we didn't start the fire. And what's interesting about that song, it, it seems to be one of those seminal moments in his career where a lot of people, like you, thought, "Wow, that's really cool," and got on board. And then there was another sort of fifty percent that went, "What the hell's this nonsense? He, he's essentially just sort of scat singing a phone book. Like, what, what the hell's he doing here?" Uh, it's one of those you, you either love it or you hate it, and it's sort of the same thing with billy joel there's there seems to be i'm a billy joel fan or i am not a billy joel fan there doesn't seem to be a lot of those like hey man i like it when he comes on the radio i don't change the channel it it really is i was i was intrigued how he always had remarkably beautiful models living in his house um I mean, you know, famously he was with Christy Brinkley, um, but there were others that were living in his house, and at the same time he was going out with Christy Brinkley, and it was kind of intriguing that he basically had this kind of dormitory of of stunning women. It is amazing what having an incredible amount of cash can do. Well, the other thing is this, is if you can sit down at the piano and play a song for them um it's amazing what that can do too 
It really is. But I'm just saying that if I had a million dollars, my face would be absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> I think you have an incredibly handsome face as it is. And I think people worry far too much about their looks. And the one thing that I always keep in mind is the observation that the face is carved from within. It is. But but it, this is not a $50 face. This is no, 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 you know. That's why I only approach my wife with the lights turned off in the uh, in the house. We we have dimmers in every room for for conversation purposes, <laughs> so, so that you can talk to me without going. Who the hell is this ugly guy talking to me? But anyway, uh, Stormfront. Uh, you, do, you, you do yourself a, a complete and utter disservice. Sir. <laughs> but Stormfront was, of course, one of the big albums, uh, and of course, produced by Mick Jones. Mick Jones at the time was was off doing that and he, and he had just done or was it no had he done yeah he had done 5150 he was sort of vacillating between I'm in foreigner and I'm a guy behind the, the board uh, dialing knobs but let's listen to all the stories that liberty has to tell I and I'm going to pat myself on the back I just think that this was an incredibly fun conversation and I think if you if you stick it out and listen to the whole thing you are going to be thoroughly entertained Liberty was incredibly incredibly funny and it's funny um, because I like repeating myself but just before the interview started when I called him he uh, the first thing he says to me is so what was it like interviewing Gene Simmons when you were 11 years old and I went what he goes, oh yeah. He oh. goes, he goes, oh yeah. I He'd researched you. Research. That's right. He goes, he goes, I researched you. I got to make sure I'm not talking to just anybody. And so we had this long conversation about that interview, interviewing Gene and meeting Gene and no makeup and unmasked era and and we literally did 15 to 20 minutes. And I went, uh, and it led to a whole bunch. I went, I said, you know, this is show content. We we should have been recording this. And he goes, yeah, you're probably right. But uh, I just wanted to relate that story because it wasn't even hello. It was like, so what was it like interviewing Gene Simmons when you were 11? I was like, oh, OK, this is not just some schnurd. He, he's taken the time to say, all right, you're going to want to know about me. I'm going to learn a little bit about you. So that that was interesting. And, and uh, no, it's really cool. That shows he's connected and he's not taking it for granted. Yeah, I, I like that. But he's, uh, uh, ironically, we would use the phrase he's not phoning it in. He was not, though he was, literally. Yeah, exactly. L literally. <laughs> but uh, speaking of uh, phoning it in, let us get over to our uh, wonderful uh, conversation with Liberty. And we, of course, talk uh, all these different Billy Joel albums being in the band. And I mentioned uh, before Hired Guns, the movie that was put together by uh, Jason Hook from uh, Five Finger Death Punch, also included um, Phil X of Def Leppard, uh, Def Leppard <laughs> of Bon Jovi, who is Canadian and, of course, played in Triumph and all that. So without further ado, Le Voici, here he is, the one, the only. Liberty DeVito. We are speaking with drummer Liberty DeVito, the new band, of course, or, or the most recent band is the Slim Kings. Uh, and Slim Kings, yes. Slim I'm actually in two bands right now. One is the Slim Kings, the other is the Lords of 52nd Street. Yes. Lords of 52nd Street has myself, Richard Kanata, Russell Javers, who worked in the studio with Billy and on the road with Billy. And that's what we do is Billy songs. Yeah. So there's two bands. There's two Slim bands. Slim Kings, though, is my the love of my life. Yeah. So, so let's start with that. And then of course I will ask you a couple of Billy questions. Cause it's, 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 you know, that's what people do. 
though yeah. I have um, not, but not the typical ones. We're going to try, and then we're we'll talking about the little kids rock because, in fact, you know what? I'm going to start with that because I think the uh, being a philanthropic and and giving back to the community is is probably more important than music. So let me start there. Um, okay. You, you've been involved with the Little Kids Rock charity, which, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but it is a charity in the States that encourages and and supports kids in, uh, what do you call them, uh, low-income areas or socially, yeah. so, so, socioeconomically disadvantaged areas and provides them with instruments and i mean fill in the blanks because i i'm canadian and i don't know the whole thing but but talk to me about that and and getting involved with it and how can people hearing us get involved that they want to support this whatever the politically correct way to say it is it it's it goes to schools in the uh more uh ghettoy areas kind of like uh, uh up in the bronx and stuff like that where the, the music curriculum has been taken out. It was, it was started by this, this uh, gentleman, Dave Wish, who was a school teacher in the worst section of L.A., a terrible section of L.A. And after school, he noticed that kids were just hanging out, just hanging out. So he told them, he goes, look, I play guitar. I'll give you lessons if you promise you'll come, you know, every day to, to the lessons. So he started out with 20 students. Little Kids Rock has had over a half a million kids go through the, the, the Little Kids Rock system. Their, way, their approach to teaching is teach the kids what they want to know. Teach them their music, what they're listening to now. How many people have you uh, met that uh, say, well, I used to play uh, piano, but I got tired of taking lessons because I didn't want to play Bach. I wanted to play Little, Little Richard. But the teacher wouldn't teach me that, so I, I kind of dropped out of piano. This starts with the uh, kids playing the music that they want to play, learning the music that they want to play. And eventually, when they get good at what they want to play, they'll go back and find out where that music came from. And, you know, um, the, 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 the mission is teach a kid one chord. He could play 25 songs. Teach a kid two chords in the progression, he could play 50 songs. Teach a kid all three chords in a progression, he can play 150 songs. So that's what Little Kids Rock does. We do a gala every year to raise money. Uh, I, I am fortunate enough to be in the house band. I get to play with the likes of Trombone Shorty. I played with Brian Wilson, Elvis Costello, uh, Smokey Robinson, uh, just to name a few. It, it's, it's a great organization. It really is, and, and I'll just plug it real quick. Uh, littlekidsrock.org. That's littlekidsrock.org, and, and you can certainly um, find out more information and make a donation. And just, just real quick, because we were talking off-air about sort of the healing power of music that as we get older, the bones ache and this and that, and and you put on a song, whether it's Billy Joel or Bon Jovi or Kiss or, or Frank Sinatra, suddenly things don't hurt as much. And and here are these kids that don't have these instruments and they don't have the music programs. How important is music, do you think, for, for the development of a person and, and the well-being of a person, and particularly the kids? Well, first of all, it's, it's, it's not easy to learn to play an instrument. It takes dedication. And then when you have a passion for it, 
you realize how in depth you can get into this music. Like you said, we put on a record. It's funny because I heard a DJ one morning. He said, Oh, I feel terrible today. I woke up so bad with a bad headache. I got to do something about it. And he put on I'm down by the Beatles. And it was like, yes, you know, that'll wake you up. That'll move you because music moves you. And you know, when, when they learn how to play an instrument, you're actually learning another language really, you know? And, um, I know when I was in school, I was in sixth grade. I wanted to play the drums. I joined the sixth grade school band. The, the teacher told me to put the sticks down because I would, I couldn't do the buzz roll for the star spangled banner. And, uh, I got very discouraged. And, but when I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, I said, forget about the buzz roll. I'm going to do what that guy's doing. I was pointing at Ringo. And then the drums gave me an identity in my school. I was the kid that played the drums in school. And uh, so, you know, when you learn an instrument, not only are you learning something else that, that is difficult to, to do and some other kid next to you can't do it, but you can do it, uh, but you're getting an identity too. You become this person that does this thing. And it's a, it's a great feeling. It really, really is. And, and it's funny that you mentioned the I'm down and it, because I know I get migraines every so often. And what I normally do is I put in the headphones and then I play whatever's on my phone, whether it's Bon Jovi or Kiss or whatever, Foreigner. Right. Uh, and my wife goes, you have a headache. You should go to bed and t- take some Tylenol. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Once I start singing these songs and I start getting into it, I'll forget <laughs> that I have a headache. <laughs> it, it, it'll go away. So there's something about it. You know, um, last, last week, my friend, my band, the Lords of the Secretary were playing in Florida and being my age and having this two year old and picking her up all the time and then sitting on an airplane for a few hours to go somewhere and then in a van to go to the gig. My back kind of goes out. I could barely stand up straight from a city position. But once I was done playing the set that we did, you know, for two hours, I was doing two stairs at a time going up the stairs. I just felt great. You know, it just feels good to do that. Yeah, it, it, it really does. So l- let's talk about, about the bands and the careers. So the Lords of 52nd street, of course, I guess the name yeah. is sort of derived from, from the album. Um, yeah, it, it was actually given to us by Phil Ramone when he listed the credits on the, on the sleeve of the album. He called us the Lords of 52nd street. Is, is that something that, you know, you just want to bring the music faithfully to the fans or, or is this something that at some point you want it to become a more recording artist, you know, record original music with the guys, or is it really, no, we're just going to sort of play these Billy Joel songs as they are and just give the fans in the audience a kick and just, you know, have them have just a good time. So the whole idea is, is that, if you want to experience, because B- Billy right now has uh, dropped the, the the keys of the songs like a whole step, even more some some of the tunes. There's nobody connected to the records anymore in his band. So we got together, and our mission is to show you what it was like in the '70s and '80s. That we, we play with the same intensity, the same energy, doing those songs. We got this guy Dave Clark, who was in one of those. Uh, uh, what do you call them? Tribute Co- bands. Tribute bands, cover bands. Billy Joel stuff. Yeah. And he he does the Billy part. He plays piano when he sings. As a matter of fact, he even looks like Billy when he walks out of the stage. Uh, 
two of the guys, the bass player and the guitar player that, uh, that are in the band, were a part of uh, Billy's uh, play, Move It Out. One was a musical director in England. One was a musical director for the road show. So everybody is connected to the Billy stuff. But me and Richie and Russell play at the intensity that we did in the 70s and 80s. And people come up to us and, and they say, wow, I felt like I was transported back there. And, and you guys sound more like the record than Billy does these days. Right, which, and to be fair to Billy and to be fair to, to, to Paul Stanley and to, to Steven Tyler and all these bands where they drop down a little bit, listen, when you hit 50 and when you hit 60 and when you hit 70, you're not 25 anymore. And I think the vocalists particularly uh, take the beating. I mean, I know drummers take a beating, yeah, oh, but, but, but vocalists, yeah. man, it's, you know, to be fair. Right. Definitely. Oh, there's a lot of a lot of unfairness that goes on. Right. I mean, uh, you know how many times I, I get on, on Facebook or whatever. Saw Billy last night. You know, uh, Chuck Berge is no Liberty DeVito. You know, no, he's not. He's Chuck Berge. He plays the part. He, he he was fortunate enough to get this gig that he's got. And don't compare him to me. He, I did what I did and made up those those drum parts. I created those drum parts. I am Louis DeVito. I am that guy because maybe because my father was a cop and he was abusive to me and I lived on Long Island and all those things put together made that sound that's on Billy Joel's album. For somebody like Chuck Berge, who maybe didn't experience the same childhood as I did or growing up, he's not going to do the same thing I do. If I sat in with, with James Brown's band, I'm not going to sound like those guys. Right. I okay. might try to copy what they're doing, but I'm not going to sound like those guys. You know, so so be fair to Chuck. (laughs) Yeah, be very fair to Chuck. And in fact, uh, since we were mentioning Bon Jovi, uh, fun fact, Chuck played on their first album. He was a ghost on that first album. So there you go. Yeah, Uh, um, Yeah, that stuff happens a lot. Yeah. Well, okay. let me ask you, were you ever a ghost on any albums? And are are, are you bound by non-disclosure agreements or are there there albums that you can say, hey, you know what? Aerosmith came through uh, the record plant in 1970, whatever. And I do you have those stories? No, you know, when I became a ghost is like more when the boy bands came around. I was actually living in Orlando. And there's a couple of them that I I played drums on. Yeah. One of them was an actual band. I uh, can't remember even the name that the, of the band, but yeah, it was one of those uh, Lou Pearlman bands. You one know, of the Lou Pearlman bands. So uh, O-Town, Backstreet Boys. Uh... <laughs> right, all, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. You, you walk huh. in and, and it's funny because the drummer's sitting in the control room watching you play the drums. <laughs> and you're like, well, I can't wait till you, you, I put my name on your drum. So, okay, so you did some stuff with the boy bands. That's interesting. I, and I'm, I'm curious. Now, I want to ask you about Hired Gun, the the movie, because Jason yeah. Hook, who is a great yes. Canadian, plays with, of course, Five Finger Death Punch, was very much involved in putting that together. Um, right. When I saw you on there, I was, I don't know if shocked is the word, but very surprised because I didn't see you as a Hired Gun. I saw you as, well, this is Billy Joel's drummer for 30 years. He's part of the band. He's He's the band. He's not the hired gun and there right. you are so so talk to me about that were you not considered a band guy did you not see yourself as part of the band i, I know there's it was acrimonious after and there was a lawsuit and but 
But for those 30 years, was this not the band? And you weren't a hired gun. You were the band. Right. The funny, the funny thing is, the way, the way we got, when Billy did the, the Turnstiles album, uh, right. me, it, it was only me and Doug Stegmaier involved with Billy at the time. And we, me and Doug were in a band called Topper before we got with Billy. Now, when we were recording the Turnstiles album, and it was just the three of us, Billy was listening back to the tracks and said, we need guitar. So we got the two guitar players from Topper into the band. So Topper actually became Billy's band. And everywhere we went, he called us his band. This is my drummer. You're absolutely right. We assumed that we were all going to share in whatever. And I felt that all the way up till the end that I was his guy. But, um, you know, lawyers and agents and all those other people got, I guess they convinced them to think differently, you know? So, um, that's how, but, but it doesn't change it for the, uh, for the, for the fans, right? The the fans like us, we, we, we still see it as the band. All right. Since we mentioned turnstiles and I do want to get back to the hired gun, but since we mentioned turnstiles, um, just quickly well, talk to me about one more, yeah. one, one more thing about being a band member. Right. I think I am the most recognized person other than maybe Max Weinberg who plays with an artist right. like Max plays with Bruce Springsteen. I played with Billy Joel, you know, not as many people know, uh, Tico Torres with Bon Jovi or, you know, I'd agree. Like, yeah. So yeah, it, it, it was always built like being a band when they used to, we used to make videos of, of playing live. The, the uh, people who were directing it was always like, get a lot of the drummer, you know, Billy used to rely on me. He, he wanted me in the band because he needed somebody to uh, be playing up there. So people would take their eyes off of Billy for a minute. So he could at least blow his nose, you know? So yeah, it was that, that's, we thought it was a band too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would agree. I mean, and, and quite frankly, if you think of Max Weinberg or, or Little Stevens or yourself, I think people would be able to point you out quicker than, let's say, the original members of Foreigner. I mean, we love Dennis right. Elliott and we love those guys. But I think if you there was a lineup and somebody said, point out the drummer, they would probably point to you or Max and go, that guy's a drummer. I don't know who that guy is. And you're like, wow. You don't know Dennis Elliott? Right. <laughs> right? And, and no yeah, offense this, to those guys. Name, name, name the drummer in the cars. You know, like, I don't know. <laughs> you That's know? a good point. I, I don't know. See, Benjamin Orr, no, he was bass. Uh, Rick Ocasek. He was uh, bass, yeah. Uh, 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 yeah. Well, I can't, uh, uh, God. Uh, Elliot Easton is guitar. Uh, guitar. Hmm. <laughs> wow, I don't know. <laughs> off off the top of my head. I, of course, and I am a Cars fan. I, I did buy their albums uh, back in the day. But, but okay, let me quickly ask you about Turnstiles, because that one to me has the, the that interesting story. He's out on the West Coast, makes the album with West Coast guys, or Left Coast guys, whatever you want to call it, and it's yeah. it's not good. It's blah. He, uh, uh, hold on. Yeah. He makes he makes and, and and Street Life Serenade. Right. Serenade. Those two albums. He makes with studio musicians. He's going on the road with other guys. So not the guys that played on the record. Uh, another band goes on the road with him. He has Doug Stegmaier already from the band Topper, our friend, 
out with him on the Street Life Serenader album, tells Doug he wants to move back to New York. He wants the same band to record with him that uh, will go on the road with him. And he wants a New York style drummer, which meant aggressive and hard hitting. And uh, so he comes to New York. He's being uh, uh, courted by uh, CBS Records, Jim Gersio, and not Jim Gersio, uh, Jim Gersio, is that his name? The producer that, that, that produced Chicago? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, Jim Gersio. He uh, is now in charge of producing the album that eventually became Turnstiles. So he, Elton had just fired D. Murray and Nigel Olson. So he gets D and Nigel in to record with Billy, to record Turnstiles. Billy hates it, fires Gersio. That ends uh, D and, and, uh, and uh, Nigel. He gets in my truck, drives out to Long Island, and we go in the studio to record Turnstiles on, uh, in uh, Hempstead, Long Island at Ultrasonic Studios. And, that's, and then eventually the rest of the band Topper comes in and we become his band. Did you at that time get to hear? I mean, for, okay, first of all, was there a finished album that that you re-recorded and stripped apart? Was was it already there? Did you have a chance to hear it? Did you sort of say, "Oh yeah, I can see why," uh, or is that more myth? Uh, you know, where, no, where there was an album. There was a, an album. I heard tapes of it. I heard tapes of it. Uh, where. You know, in, in the song Angry Man, when I'm playing the fast mm-hmm. part in the mm-hmm. beginning on the hi-hat, yep. that was, Billy wanted that because he, he, it kept him in time when he was doing that thing on the keyboards. So he wanted that fast thing. Nigel couldn't do that. He just played straight eights on, on the hi-hat. Chut, 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 chut. I, I remember that vividly. And the thing that I remember that they did do better than we did was the song James because there's so much harmony in it. And those guys could really sing, you know. But um, yeah, I know why Billy threw it away. It didn't rock enough. It kind of was too much like Elton. As a matter of fact, while they were in the studio, Elton sent them Nigel and Dee flowers and said, "I heard you're playing with another piano player." You know, <laughs> sent them flowers. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> you're 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 yeah. you're you're cheating on me with with another piano player. That's funny. Um, right. Right. Uh, and so, and that, of course, was the beginning of a long relationship. And obviously what you guys did, Doug and Russell and, and stuff, uh, ended up being the sound, right? I mean, that that yes. was the sound. Um, let, let me just quickly, I'm going to jump around because we did talk about, um, uh, uh, what do you call them? Uh, uh, the, I was going to, no, not Michael, um, Sackler Burner. The Slim Kings. Yeah. I, I was yeah. thinking it's the Michael Schlackler band. I'm like, no, it's not. The Slim Kings, yes. Um, talk to me about putting that together and and finding that new musical voice. And, you know, and, and, and what's it? Is the purpose just sort of a, a hobby or is the purpose to, like, make music and, and get it to the fans and then get out on a, on, on a, a long tour and, and sort of work it? Or is it really like, no, well, you know, I did it for 30 years. This is just for fun. We're just having fun here. No, no. First of all, we are having fun. That's definitely something. But now I played on Grammy 
records and stuff like that, all that kind of stuff. But it's always been Billy Joel gets the Grammy. Luckily, just the way it was when the Grammy was record of the year, that includes all of us. But I've never been in a band that's just a band name that w- wins something or, or does something that's big. So I, I've, my dream has always been like to be like Ringo and be in the Beatles. You know, he was in a band, the Beatles. And my, my thing has always been like, what did I do? What, what did Ringo do for the, the Beatles that I didn't do for Billy? Well, we kind of did the same thing. So to have a band name and, 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 and achieve something is what I really, that's, that's a dream to, to come true yet for me. You know, see, there's still always something to do in music. But um, we write our own material. The three of us write together. Uh, and we get placements on on TV and and you know all the movie stuff. That's how the the band generates money. But we also play live to kind of build a fan base. Now, the reason why I picked these two guys. Now, Andy is uh, Andy Astanasio, who plays bass. Is I think he's thirty two, and Michael's like thirty three or something like that. The reason why I picked the young guys is because. Every guy that has been in the position that I've been in, like been in a band that, that made it really big, when they start another band, they kind of tend to sound like the band that they just left, like a classic rock band. And I did not want to have a classic rock band. Like when people come to see us, I don't want them to say like, oh, you know, it sounds like classic rock. I don't want that to happen. So I hooked up with these younger guys because Michael found me on, uh, on back in, on MySpace, and he, he called me up and he said, do you want to help me uh, play on, on my demos? And I said, you know, you got to send me something because I want to make sure you're good. So uh, I, I listened to his stuff, and it was, it was great. I played on his demos, and then he called me and said, well, what do you think about like putting a band together? And I thought, this is great. This is exactly what I want to do. I could bring the old school in and the new guys will bring their new flavor in. And the thing that connects us is the, Andy does a lot of hip hop. He'll come in and say, listen to this beat on this hip hop record. And he goes, it's great. We, we need to, to do something like this. And I'll say, you know, that beat is the beat from uh, the Supremes song on, on the album so-and-so. And that's where our connection is. Because a lot of the hip hop rhythms come from the old school. So they do. You combine those two together, you get the Slimkins. Yeah, they do. You hear uh, a lot of that. Uh, talk, first of all, help me with how to pronounce Michael's name. It's Sackler Burner, correct? Yes. yes. Okay. And, and what I like about him is that for a period of time, he lived in Montreal, which is, of course, where I live. So, so you got to like him for that. But but talk to me about sort of the new way to make money in the business because he, he is primarily known for uh, TV shows, uh, you know, placement right. music and play. And, you, you know, you look at young artists and young people and they say, oh, I got to be a rock star. I got to play the arena. I got to play Madison Square Garden. Then I got to go play Dodger Stadium. And that's and then, of course, they realize you, it's not that easy. And they give up, right. and yet you get somebody like Michael who goes, ah, Dodger Stadium's nice, but I can have a career doing this. Um, 
is that sort of the the new reality that maybe arena rock and stadium rock is is something of the past and we got to look at movie scoring and tv show scoring and and sports scoring and that's sort of uh, how to make it in the business these days well the the way the record companies work now 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 i was with billy in the glory days you know when you can sell 10 million albums and and you can play arenas and and play stadiums and stuff like that and keep still the price you can keep the price down low today with a record company now you want your record company because a record company can get your your album out there and they got the and the motor behind them to do all the, the publicity and all that kind of stuff but these days, the record company does what is called a 360 deal. They take everything. They want your, your publishing. They want the, part of the money you're making on tour. They want your merchandise. They, they want everything. So it's very difficult to make money when you're, when you're touring. So the best thing to do is hold on to your publishing because that's where the money's at and get these placements on TV. You know, a lot of bands write songs deliberately sounding like something that you may have heard on TV before, you know, uh, like, uh, there's a lot of this, this very dark music in the beginning of, of, of some of these, these, these shows that are on TV and it's, the music is written purposely like that. So, uh, the last thing that the Slim Kings did, we just did a new album and, uh, we, we did it in this, uh, studio called diamond mind in long island city in queens and it's all vintage gear vintage microphones vintage drums bass guitars everything was vintage and we listened back to it and it sounds old school and the the comment that was made mostly was i hear a lot of placements here that's the kind of music we, that we were writing so that that's, that's what we go for yeah. Now, now, is that uh, a new album, or are we talking about expensive habits? Are, are we at a no, new? Been... Yeah, new. This is new. Not out yet. Should be mixing. Oh. Should be finished tomorrow. Oh, okay. So, what? Okay, so, so two things. Then, uh, what's it called? And when? Oh, can... wait, uh, you know, we don't even have a title yet. We don't have a title of the album. Yet. I've got a perfect title. Just call it Mitch. It's 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 a great seller. It just just Mitch. No, but yes, <laughs> I have expensive habits. No, but okay. So you don't have a title for it yet. But when do you think? Because expensive habits was 2017, unless I'm mistaken. So two what? years ago. Is what? this something that you put out in May, or is this something that you sort of mix, master, uh, package, uh, and then September? You know, you roll it out. No, sort of. I, th- I think spring. Spring. Definitely spring. Better be up by spring. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, okay. So, to, how how effective then? Because you talk about these three sixty deals, and and you know, a lot of artists as they got successful, and I'm not going to name names, yeah. but it's it's pretty much any artist. At some point, they will give an interview where they bash the record company and say oh they stole everything from us and we 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 created these songs and they're taking all the money but you did mention that they do sort of provide the logistics they provide the framework yes. they provide the distribution they provide the lawyers they provide the expertise they provide the artist to do the album cover are you a after all these sales with billy joel's albums and all these uh, 
are you one of these that sits back and say those mother f or do you say you know what if it wasn't for them we wouldn't be here today i'm the one that says if it wasn't for them we wouldn't be here today you know it, it's like some guys are like i want to buy that car right there okay well you can buy that car but it's going to cost you this much to get the engine too what i gotta buy an engine too you know it's like the record company is the engine. They are the, the, the ones that, that can take it over the top. They're the ones that work it on radio. They're the ones that do all that stuff that gets it out there. Because you, you can put it on the Internet, but what you put it on is that it's gone. Nobody's working it, you know? So they work it. That's what's important about a record deal. And so how do you sort of see the new model these days? Because everybody says, well, you just make your own album at home. Everybody can get a home Pro Tools or a Garage Band or whatever, and you can just throw some videos up on YouTube, and the next thing you know, you're a rock star. Um, are we in a period where it's it's very, very difficult to be the next rock star? There's just too much out there. There's there, There's too much availability, and you just can't find traction and you can't find a fan base well there's a, there's a, a lot out there and, and you have to weed through all the garbage of course you know youtube there's so much stuff but but that's where see that's where the record company can take your thing and put you above all the other stuff uh even spotify if you can get on their playlist you can you can get up there but if a manager or, or somebody like that from a record company can get you on that Spotify playlist in that top 40. You know, they're the ones that have the connection. It's that, that's what you need is that, that connection. You, anybody can get on the internet, but how do you connect with these big, huge companies? How do you get in there? You know, you need a, somebody that knows how to work that. And that's what Columbia Records did for Billy. They knew how to work all that stuff. And they had the money behind them, even though he had to pay it back. You know, every time you spend money, you think it, they're giving um, you money. No, recoupment. <laughs> that, yeah. yeah. Re recoupment is a yeah. four letter word, apparently. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's that's the expression in the music business. Recoupment's a four letter word. No, but yeah, it's just funny because uh, a lot of bands and, and I was talking about one band the other day, a band called Love Hate. And they're like, well, we were given an eight hundred thousand dollar advance and we yeah. blew it all and it put us in the hole and we were never able to pay it back and so therefore our career was all shit and you just go well how is that the record company's fault you know like, right. like they gave you eight hundred thousand dollars it's not their fault that you're not bright i mean no offense <laughs> right well no no well, the thing is is but even back in the old days it was like okay we're going to give you a, a million dollar advancement okay we're, you're going to spend how much on making this record? Oh, we got a million bucks. Let's take our time. Let's get this guy. We'll get this guy to play guitar on this. We'll get this guy to sing on this. We'll do it. You know, next thing you know, you spent your million bucks and you're getting ready to put the record out. Now you spent that million dollars. How much are they going to put after the record's made? Forget about it. Yeah. yeah if you yeah. don't have that money, forget it. It's going to just sit on the shelf. Yeah, and you that know, was the so, number one mistake. People would say, "Well, how much of that million is left for the promotion?" And you go, pr 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 "What? Promotion? What? Well, yeah, well where's exactly. the? Did you leave two hundred and fifty thousand for the promotion? No, we we hired Bob Ezrin, and he hired the string quartet. And oh, <laughs> right, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how people exactly. got in trouble. 
Yeah, so the, the, the Slim Kings, like, now, we've been fortunate enough to play enough gigs to make the record, but, like, the guy who just produced the new Slim Kings record, uh, Nick uh, Mushan, now, he plays with, with, with everybody. Uh, he, he was just on Saturday Night Live a few months ago with the Lady Gaga, not Lady Gaga, um, what's the other girl's name? And the other DJ, what's his name? Nick, uh, Nick Bronson plays with him. Right. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people like that. This guy was worth his weight in gold for us. So it was almost like reasonably, in a reasonable term, whatever he wanted. Yeah, let's, let's do this with him because he can make us sound like now we can get the, to the record company. And we can have enough gigs and make enough money with placements that we can pay to make this record ourselves. And then once we get to the record company, it's like you hand it to them and it's like, oh, it's all paid for already. Now you just take it over the top, you know? And by the way, it's amazing these days. You know, back in the day, if you didn't have a $2 million budget, you were Little League. And now you can essentially make an album for under 10000 That sounds probably even better. And it's just like, wow. Yeah. Um, speaking yeah. of an album that had a lot of different players on it, uh, the Mick Jones solo album of 1989. I am, of course, a big uh, Foreigner fan. Um, you are credited on that, but but I've always found that the credits were a little sort of not too direct. It's like, well, he plays drum on it, but so does Steve Ferrone, so does Dennis Elliott. How much right. of that did you play on? Uh, was it every track? Was it parts of every track? Yeah. Was it three tracks? Like, how involved were you in the Mick Jones solo album? Mick Jones was producing Stormfront, the, the Billy yep. Joel Stormfront album. Yep. During that time, he was putting together his own album. So he, while he was picking and choosing who, could play, who would play on the album, he asked me one day, he goes, can you play on this song? And it was kind of like in between uh, a Billy days, you know? So I remember playing on one, maybe two songs. That was about it. And I think most drummers did that, you know, one or two songs. So, and that was during the Stormfront time. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit then, because uh, I was going to ask you that as a follow-up, uh, about having Mick produce it, because here's a guy who's in a successful band yeah right uh, not good enough for the rock and roll hall of fame apparently (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i've got got friends at the rock and roll hall of fame so i can't really say anything about (laughs) (laughs) but yeah but i think we can both appreciate the, the 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 silliness of that statement but um he comes in to produce stormfront what does he bring because i i've always felt that Sometimes, you know, in in hockey or in football, you say uh, the worst player makes the best coach and the best player makes the worst coach. Does he come in and add some flavors because he has an ear for guitar and he has an ear for the song? Uh, Or or do you think to yourself, wow, why is sort of Jack Douglas not here today? Why is, you know, Bob Ezrin not here? How was that that experience of him producing? Because, listen, he's made... Very successful albums, including uh, Van Halen's 5150, Stormfront. Of course, he's had a hand in the Foreigner stuff. But, but he's still right. the guitarist. Well, yeah, but he's a guitarist. But, but Billy wanted him because he's also a songwriter. So, you know, and Billy being the songwriter, 
when Billy comes up with a song, it might not be like what you hear on the record. It has to be molded or parts have to be switched around. And, and he needed another mind like that. Phil Ramone was really good at doing something like that, like taking a song and, and switching parts around or, or telling Billy where to go with it, you know, and Mick kind of did the same thing and Mick liked heavier drums, you know, so I was pounding a little more on the, on the uh, Stormfront album. Mick was also into the new sound that was happening at that time, you know, because Barna just had, I want to know what love is, you know, that, that tune. So there was that sound now that was out that Phil kind of had the old school sound and Billy wanted something new, but they actually asked Eddie Van Halen to produce the album before he uh, got Mick because Eddie was too busy doing stuff and he couldn't do it. He wanted somebody to take, him to the next level to take Billy to the next level so and and Mick kind of did that wow so so I'll say two things to that first wow uh, he actually wanted Eddie Van Halen to produce Stormfront that that would have been uh, a very interesting mix especially if Eddie had lent some guitar into it but uh, yeah. you are you you did put out what we'll all call a famous quote where you said uh, to the New York Post if uh, Billy sang only the good die young like he wanted to it would have been a reggae song. So how much involvement did the band, did, did, did you, did, did Mick Jones, the producer, or any of the producers have? I mean, did, did he come in with songs that were, you know, either more reggae-ish or pop-ish or, or country-ish? And then you guys went, yeah, that's not really... That's not really what we do here. Uh, or or yeah. was it sort of a give and take? You know, some of the no. songs came in, they were great, and... You, Go ahead. Some of the songs, some of the, like, uh, when Only Good Die Young came in, I remember the first time I heard Only Good Die Young, we were in Knoxville in a hotel, and he came in with a guitar and played it for me, and he played it in a reggae rhythm. And when we got into the studio, as a matter of fact, there's a demo tape somewhere flying around of it in reggae. The song actually beat, did, was the demo was in reggae. And I remember saying to him, like, I, I I don't like the way that where this is going. And I said, the closest you've ever been to Jamaica was the Jamaica train station that's on Long Island. You know, so I, we, my, I always loved Up From The Skies by uh, Jimi Hendrix Experience. I think it's on the Axis Boulders Love. Yep. Uh, and it, it, the, the album opens up with that uh, thing where he's talking to, uh, they're doing an interview with Mr. Paul Caruso on spaceships and space people and stuff like that. And then once he, he finishes his, his interview, he flies away with his guitar like, right? And then that goes out. And then Mitch Mitchell does this fill. That is, my interpretation is on uh, Only the Good Die Young. That, Mitch Mitchell does the same thing on Up From The Skies. And it's done with brushes, and it's a swing thing like that, like Only the Good Day Young. So I kind of suggested that. And it was like, okay, this works, <laughs> you know? That's great. Um, all right. So, so in general, how involved were you specifically, and how involved were the band members in writing and song? And, and, and for fans that, that may or may not understand, when we say write a song, it's not just the lyrics. Lyrics are part of a song, but, but writing the drum parts or in the guitar parts, that's also part 
of writing a song. How involved were you, or or did you just take direction? Was it like, no, I need you know a bumpity bop 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 here. Go ahead and figure that out. Were you directed, or were the parts yours, or a combination of both, or you know, talking about the songwriting process and and your and the band's involvement because obviously the guitarist and the, this and the, everybody, right? We, we yeah, we were allowed to play whatever we felt would go in the song. So I would say 98% of the music that you hear from Billy Joel is us doing what comes out of us. That, that's what comes out of us. No one says, do this or do that. Just the way you are, I was playing the, um, uh, the three, hitting the three on the snare and the bass drum with the, with the brush on the snare drum. And Phil Ramone, I could see him through the glass giving me that little uh, skip jump thing there that's in the song and the drum beat. So that's how that was developed. Uh, Billy might call me on the telephone and say, I got a new song. He'll hum it to me on the phone and go, can you play like Ringo plays on Ticket to Ride? And I would say, well, I could play like Ticket to Ride, but I can make it so it doesn't sound like Ticket to Ride. You know, so everybody had suggestions of, of what to do. Uptown Girl, in the middle, when it breaks down, it just does the tom fills. When I went up to him, I said, this is what the Four Seasons would have done. You know, so we all had say. Nobody ever really just said, I want you to play this. Only once, Phil Ramone told me to play straight bass drum on my life. And I said, I'm not playing that disco stuff. I refuse to play it. And he threw something on the control board and he said, what have you been in this business for 20 minutes and you're going to tell me what you don't want to do? And I think about that every time I walk past the gold single that's on the wall. Let's talk single. Just I wasn't going to talk singles, but um, that album that we're talking about, the, the Mick Jones produced one there, uh, Stormfront, has We Didn't Start the Fire. And, and that's one yeah. where I specifically remember as a kid seeing the video on Much Music, not MTV because I'm in Canada. And I loved it. I, I just I, I loved I, I don't know if you want to call it a rap or, or, or a rap, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and I was a history buff, so I thought this is great. And and there seems to be this this divide of no, that's horrible, and then no, this is great. And there doesn't seem to be a middle ground. What was that song like for you? And and are, are, what what side do you fall on? Are you, are you on the Mitch side or on the Mitch's wife side, basically? <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because I think most most music. And including the person, Billy Joel, fall on one side or the other to the public. You know, either they love him or they can't stand him. Uh, There's it, it, never like, hey, he's all right. It's either I hate him or I love him. But, you know, uh, you're right about that. that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's really weird. Like, uh, you, you know, like you, there's no denying the Beatles are great. You never hear anybody say, I hate the Beatles. No. <laughs> it's like the, everybody likes the Beatles. Elton John. Most people like Elton John, and they love uh, his flamboyant self. Billy, blue-collar, middle-class, and some people don't like him, and some people like him. But that song, We Didn't Start the Fire, we had finished the entire album. And um, Columbia Records came in to hear what, what was done, and they heard Extremes, and they said, we hear the second single. We don't hear a first single yet. So, you know, uh, Columbia Records had the, um, uh, the, the right to say when Billy was done with the record. Not Billy didn't just hand it in. 
so he um, saw this kid, a kid came up to him and they were talking about what was going on in the world today. And, and the kid said, boy, you had it made. Nothing really happened when you were younger. And he went, oh, yeah. And he started to name off these things. Then he got a book called Chronicles. You could buy it in the bookstore. And it lists everything that happened for like 100 years or something like that. And he started at the day he was born. And he just flipped the pages. And it kept going like Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray, you know, just like that. And that's how he wrote the song. That's hilarious. So, and, uh, so when people say yeah. that Billy Joel could s- sing the phone book and it would sound great, um, yeah. you're not wrong. <laughs> no, they're not, they're not at all. <laughs> that's, that's true. Because he was basically just singing a history book. So, exactly. That's, exactly. Oh, that's, that's, but uh, he was always a history, he was a very big history buff. He knew a lot. When we went to the Soviet Union, he knew a lot about the Soviet Union. A lot about every place we went, we traveled. He knew a lot about it. You know, he always that, read. You know, you you reminded me because I I, I I I forgot to put that down in my notes. But the Soviet Union, which now yeah. you you know you hop on a plane, whatever American Airlines, and you fly over, and everybody's happy, happy. But that was not the case back then. There was you had to get consular approval. You had to get all uh-huh. kinds of uh, you know you had to be vetted by whatever the FBI or whoever it was. What was that experience like to play in Russia, to play in the USSR when it was the USSR? And, and were you greeted with open arms? Were you suspected of being CIA agents? Were, you know, I mean, because, you know, was it a comfortable experience? Was it a, a history making experience? Or was it like, oh, my God, we, I, I'm glad we survived and got our asses out of there? Well, to be honest with you, it, it was it was it was both. When we first heard we were going to the Soviet Union, uh, I, I, there were three uh, acts that were asked. I think Stevie Wonder, Billy Joel, and Bruce Springsteen. I think one of them didn't want to go. One of them was working, and Billy said, "Okay, we'll go," because Billy always felt like when his daughter grew up, and she asked, "What did you do during the Cold War, Daddy?" She wanted to say. We went to play for the people of, of the Soviet Union. Uh, so that put aside, like, it was exciting to go until my mother said, do you really have to go? <laughs> you know, she got very nervous. And uh, when we played in Washington, D.C., a lot of the people, a lot of uh, uh, Russians from the um, Soviet Union, uh, from the uh, embassy, uh, embassy, or came embassy. to see us. And, and they literally graded from one to five each song which was for you know, sexual content had, for drug references yeah. for yeah yeah violence they had they had questions about goodnight saigon and allentown those two songs and why allentown was, i mean like it was okay why Allent- well, i mean goodnight saigon i get it the vietnam war but uh, allentown right and billy said about the vietnam war he said that this is your Afghanistan because they had the same thing in Afghanistan, of course, where they never didn't win anything. Uh, but Allentown, it's like it, the union runs away. They just the, the government just abandons, you know, uh, Pittsburgh. All so, the companies. So they were out, offended you know. that there was a, a sort of an anti-state song or or anti, yeah, well, an anti-government song. Okay. 
Yeah, I, 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 I've never in my life thought that Allentown was offensive in any way, shape, or form, but perhaps I need no, to re-examine we were, that. Yeah, when Billy says and they they threw an American flag in our face, you know, I was like, hey, you know, goodbye, uh, we're yeah, out of here. Okay, I can, uh, all right, I, I can know, see Beth, where. Bethlehem Steel went under, you know. It, 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 you got to see the, the Bethlehem steel now. I mean, the, the, the big steel mills, they're all lit up. They, the lighting is unbelievable. They look like this, like you're seeing a dinosaur for, in real life, you know. It's unbelievable. But a lot of people lost their jobs. We're out of work. Yeah. So that, and we went to England first. We played a couple of gigs in England. And then we uh, flew on Lufthansa, which we fought against the Germans in World War II, and now I'm on a German plane, and I'm flying to the Soviet Union, which we are at the Cold War with, and they're actually the enemy. I'm thinking that I'm going to get off the plane and see these three-headed monsters that are breathing fire, and my name is Liberty, and I'm going into this place. It's like, oh my gosh. What did, am I doing? Did they ask you to change the name? Did you have to be Michael for no. the tour? <laughs> no, no, no. I really played up the, the American thing. I actually um, had a, a shirt on with an American flag on it. I had all pins on my jacket, like Mickey Mouse and American flags and all this kind of stuff. I had American flags on my on my drum set that Billy actually came up to me and they said, he said, you got to tone that American thing down. You have to tone it down a little bit. And I was like, no, man, that's, this is who I am. And I remember telling a guy uh, 25 years later when we did this documentary about what it was like to go to the Soviet Union, I told a guy who was there in Russia, he was the translator, I told him, I said, Billy was a little nervous of watching me with all the American flag stuff and everything around. He thought that people were going to see this ugly American, you know, uh, which we're very famous for when we go to other countries, of flaunting who we are. And the guy told me, he goes, no, they did not see that. When they looked at you, they saw you playing in a place where they could never be because you were experiencing ultimate freedom in the way you were playing and what you were doing. And that's what they saw when they looked at you. And uh, I thought, that's pretty freaking cool, you know. And I'm amazed that you weren't arrested. Uh, I have to, say, I have to say, you, you, well, pro- you, you rebel, you pushing the envelope. You know, with... we, yes, yeah, we pulled one over uh, at the end of the uh, at the end of the tour. We did three shows in Moscow, three shows in Leningrad. At the end of the tour, there was this drummer that kept coming around. You know, uh, he was in a, a, one of the bands, and and I had gone to a couple of us had gone to a rehearsal with this band, and their equipment was just shot. And I said, look, I'm going to give you my symbols at the end of the tour, right? So at the end, last show, I come out and I give him my symbols. I found out that as he was walking out, now in, in the Soviet Union, if you couldn't have something, then that meant I couldn't have it either. So they stopped him on the way out with the symbols. And they said, no, you can't, you can't have these. And he said to the, the guards, he said, but they're broken. And... They said, where? And he showed him the hole in the middle. He said, look, there's a hole in them. <laughs> and he got away with it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Now, now, yeah. um, 
as we're approaching here an hour, I'm going to I'm going to just wrap it up because I think we need to do a part two at some point because this, this is great. But uh, the RIAA has certified the five uh, most platinum albums. We've got the Eagles greatest hits at number one, uh, 38 times platinum. Michael Jackson, number two, Eagles, number three, the Beatles, white album, number four. And of course, Billy Joel's Greatest Hits, Volume 1 and 2, tied with Led Zeppelin 4 and Pink Floyd's The Wall at 5th with 23 million copies certified. <laughs> and, of course, we all know that cer- certified means that Billy, the record company, or somebody had to pay for it. So it it's 23 million certified. It actually might be at 30 million right now, but we don't know. What does that say to you knowing that you are on an album that is the fifth highest selling album in the history of the United States <laughs> makes me laugh yeah because I really I don't think about it you know I don't have gold albums on the wall as a matter of fact it's funny because when when the split came with Billy it wasn't good at all you know it was like a bad marriage that just lit up one day and I took a lot of the gold albums and, and they break really easily on the corner of a table. You know, if you smack them, you know, on the corner of a table. So in, in one of the things in the settlement with Billy was they said, well, what, what do you want? And I said, what, what we wanted. And then I said, can I have my gold albums replaced? And Columbia Records said, yeah, sure. So the one that I, I had broken said it sold a million copies. The one that I got back said it sold 23 million copies. <laughs> I was like flawed. Like, oh my God, I didn't know it sold that many. It, but it is amazing to think that that your drumming is on music that has influenced so many people. And, you know, you look at rock stars, they, they start off and they play the clubs and then they play the arenas. And then 30 years later, some of them are playing clubs again. The music that Billy plays, that you were very much part of, is still playing uh, residencies, Madison Square Garden sold out, stadium tours, uh, 23 million albums sold on, on this one album. It, it's it's remarkable. And, and what does it come down to? Is, is it just the strength of the songs? Is it the personality of the band? Is it, what's... What's sort of the secret sauce that, that just made it, that it's still something, what, what is it now, 40, 50 years, 40 years, 45 years, 50 years 40, into the career? Yeah, some, some 45 like, years is Turnstiles. I think we've, the Lords are doing the entire Turnstiles album next time we play on Long Island. Oh, that'll uh, be great. So I think it's 45 years, yeah. Wow. Uh, but listen, Phil Ramone was asked that question at a lecture once. What made Billy the icon that he became? And Phil said, Billy wrote great songs and his band came up with great arrangements. That's what did it. You're right. And, and, and on that, we will leave it there. Uh, I, I, we said we were going to do 20 minutes. We've done just under an hour, which is uh, spectacular, uh, but uh, thank you. Thank you for your time. And it just, and, and thank you for the music, by the way, I, you know, as a big fan, whether I'm talking to Ace Fraley or Alice Cooper or Slash or you or just thank you for the music. As you know, it's it's the soundtrack to all our lives. I mean, I'm sure, you know, the Beatles or whoever was the soundtrack to your life. Yes. Yes. I, I, Merci beaucoup. A lot. Well, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Absolutely. And, and um, 
listen for the Slim Kings. When the new album comes out, we'll uh, I'll get in touch with you and maybe send you up one or something. Yep, and we will uh, we will promote that. And uh, oh, you know what? Hold on. That's what we'll do. That's what we'll do. Part two. Yes, and I'm going to go back to the Slim King. I just closed the website here, but uh, uh, let me just check. SlimKings.com, I think it is. Yes, uh, Slim Kings with an S dot com. The music is on Spotify and other uh, streaming services, and of course, you can get vinyl. Yep. Uh, the limited edition vinyl and stuff, but uh, head over to slimkings.com and you can follow the band on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud, and uh, et voila, as we say. Uh, Liberty, yes. uh, thank you. Just, just thank you. Well, thank you, Mitch. And uh, talk to you soon. Yes. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. Hey, this is Frank Hannon, Tesla's lead guitarist. Be sure to visit my website, frankhannon.com, to check out my latest solo album. And keep on listening to Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Crank it up. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. And a very big thank you to Liberty DeVito. I certainly hope you enjoyed that chat. And uh, we will end this episode with a very quick chat. I was given a, a hard 15 minutes with Anders Fryden of the band In Flames. They have a new album out called I, and I, I like to say the comma, I, comma, The Mask. Uh, it came out, of course, on March 1st of this year. And uh, I would definitely, definitely check it out. Now, uh, Monsieur Niven, uh, the band... In Flames is one of these bands, and, and I'll call it more of a growler voice, more of a sort of screamer voice. And I know fans out there who love the band are going, no, he sings. But what's sort of your take on that heavy metal sort of growly vocal? Worked with a band called Storm of Perception. And initially it was all a guttural growl. And then they got a new singer and managed to get across the concept of, well, I can understand that you want to use it, but use it within the context of the song and don't make your entire presentation this guttural um, <laughs> vocalizing. And I think it, it, has it, it can have its place in the right band at the right moment in a song, but I can't listen to it ad nauseum. It just doesn't work for me. Um, and it's interesting because if I understand I, the mask, I think it's a little bit of a, a conceptual album. Um, yep. Talking about, uh, whether people will have a consistency of their presentation of their personality of their character. Uh, if you wear a mask, one mask for your friend, one mask for your wife, one mask for your dog. Um, kind of reminds me of something that Pete Townsend wrote called Eminent Front, which I thought was a brilliant piece of songwriting. And it's a, I'm, I'm curious how you get across something conceptual if you're growling all the time. Um, I think you need, need to change your mask in the song. In the song. Now, they have been criticized over the years, and we'll, we'll talk about this real quick. They, they were known as, as a more sort of melodic death metal, if, if 
those words can actually go in the same sentence. And they sort of became more alternative metal. They 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 sort of softened up and and, and added a few extra beats and all this. Um, talk to me about bands changing their sounds. Should, should a band be more ACDC-ish and say, listen, this is ACDC, this is what we do, and here's 15 albums to prove it? Or do you, should you always sort of strive to find new horizons and, and new sounds and new ways of presenting songs and song ideas? Or, or, or are both point of view sort of valid? Well, it depends on, on the band itself. Um, you know, there are certain bands that I think uh, uh, they're going to be confined into what they think their um, appropriate presentation is, and they're going to stick to it. And there are those who bring a little bit more intellect to what they're doing. And with that, I think, comes variance. I mean, you know, you can take somebody like David Bowie, who um, changed his clothes like he changed his albums, like he changed his clothes, um, and had different sonic approach uh, on one record from another record. Um, in in my own personal experience, um, I preferred to not make the same record twice. Um, we'd already made that record, so let's do just something, just do a slightly different twist on this one, and then on the next one, let's try a little different twist on that. It's a sense of development, and it's also a sense of um, avoiding pure formula. Yeah, but you but you also get trapped. You know, you're, you, it really is you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You know, Def Leppard did his, uh, uh, Hysteria, then Adrenalized, uh, and, and, and they sort of had this thing going, and then they tried something different with Slang, and everybody, it's the worst album they've ever made, it's terrible. And Kiss did, you know, Kiss, 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 oh, Kiss. Judas, and then they did uh, The Judas Elder. Priest got it yeah. with, Judas Priest got it with Turbo. You know, everybody and, got up in arms over Turbo. Um, but I actually thought there were a couple of moments in Turbo that were pretty cool. Um, you know, it, I, when I first heard Turbo, I went, oh, that's interesting. You're, you're trying something a little different. Um, it, it depends on the band, it depends on the artist. And I think you're going to get more variance when you're dealing with an individual artist than when you're dealing with an established band. I think that's part of it. It really is. But, uh, but, you know, as human beings, hopefully we learn and develop as we get a little older. And as we learn and develop, that should be reflected in the progression that you can make as a writer, as a player. And I, I, I really kind of like it when somebody comes out with something a little bit fresh and maybe not quite what you were expecting, but something that makes you go... Oh, that's interesting. Let me get into that. Let me get into that, and and, uh, and I'll uh, I'll just add to the uh, Judas Priest discussion real quick. You know, uh, uh, Rob went away. Uh, Tim Ripper Owens came in, and then Rob came back, and they do an album called Angel of Retribution, and people go, "Oh my God, it's classic Judas Priest. It's fantastic. We haven't heard this in whatever twenty years." Oh my, and then they do Nostradamus, which is a a concept album. People go, "What the hell was that? What what, what are they doing? Terrible." <laughs> And then this year, or 2018, I guess, they put out Firepower, and it's like, oh, my God, it sounds just so. <laughs> well, you know, the, 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 
for me to take something into consideration. Um, part of the good luck of when I was born was that my formative years of connecting to uh, popular musical expression were very much um, defined by the Beatles. And back when they were making records, uh, you expected it to be different on each album. And you were looking for the development of technique and compositional style. And you were looking for them to break new horizons. And that was an expectation. Um, back in those days, you know, I can remember Revolver being considered just a little close to the previous album. Um, but all through their career, their albums were different. They really and were. Brilliant for it. And you know what we had back then, even though we're not exactly the same age, is that we didn't have social media to reinforce a position for us. If you heard a Kiss album or a Beatles album and you went, okay, well, that's, that's slightly out of my comfort zone or that's a little bit different. It was sort of this personal thing. You just went, well, okay, I'll, I'll just pull out the Cheap Trick album and put that on instead. And it sort of went there. Now you go to Facebook and you go, oh, well. These hundred people are right. This sucks, and then and, and it just—it seems as though it sort of builds up in anger, and you're like, "Well, that fucking sucks." And 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 I sort of like to go back to the old. Just it's a personal experience. You're in your own little headspace. You're in your own little bedroom. And if it's great, it's great for you. And if it sucks, it sucks for you. And there's not all this people around telling you what you should be liking and and not like. I mean, I I don't know if if you, if you feel the same way, but I, that's certainly how I see well, it now. And the way I see it is that I don't require a hundred people on Facebook to tell me how I respond. And if my intellect is engaged, if the viscerality of the album moves me and makes my body want to move, um, that's my personal response to that record. And quite honestly, um, I'm really, really not a, not a, any concern of what other people think about um, music. I love it when people like what I like, but if I like something and they don't, well, I could give a damn. Yeah, I agree. And 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 by the way, I'm not saying that the hundred voices are telling me what to like, but you, they, they just it, it's bombarded and you can't avoid it. And you go, oh, anyway. Uh, yes, you can avoid it. You can turn the computer off every now and then. You well, can actually leave your phone in your pocket when you're in the restaurant. And when the menus are taken away, you can actually converse with whom you're, you're out eating. You don't have to be on that thing all the time. I mean, a astounds me how much time people are consumed by their phones well okay see now you're just talking crazy so i i'm obviously we <laughs> obviously since it is later afternoon it, it is probably cutting into your nap time so i think we should probably just get on to anders there because uh get off my phone i, I mean i have my phone on my computer on as we're doing this i'm checking email well, right go. now uh, but uh... And, and, and and you are right because when it when it comes to get off my my favorite expression is get off my lawn. Yeah, get off my lawn. Uh, here is uh, the one, the only a person who shares his name with my brother, Anders Frieden or Frieden uh, from In Flames. New album is I the Mask. Voici Anders. We are speaking with uh, lead singer Anders from the band In Flames. The new album is called 
I, the mask. Uh, Anders, an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you very much. Nice yes. to be here. Nice to be here. And by the way, you, you share a name with my brother, who's also an Anders. So uh, it's, really? it's really? Yes. Yes. Swedish heritage there? We're Danish. Oh, you're Danish? All right. Yes, from uh, Slalza. Good old Slalza. So, yes, but let's let's get to uh, Eye the Mask here. Uh, listen, over the years, the band has uh, evolved musically. You, you, you've, you've pushed boundaries. When you get to an album like Eye the Mask, do you try to write it with sort of the old fan base in mind, trying to please and appease them? Or is it about finding new fans and moving the music forward? Uh, well, I was neither in a way. I mean, it's uh, we just want to write the music or the best possible in Flames album that we can. We don't think about the fans at that point. But don't get me wrong. I mean, we love our fans. They the are the reason we can do what we do. So we we you know we have the utmost respect and we we love them all. But we can't write for for. All the new, we don't look it like that. I mean, the whole In Flames catalog is important to us. And whether you like an, one song from the first album or if you just found out about the band, it, it, to us it doesn't really matter. You know, everybody, anybody is welcome. Um, so the only thing that we think about, our only thing, is, is just like write the best possible album that we can. And that's how it is every time. And since we don't write on the road, Every album is going to sound a little bit different because we tour in a couple of years and then we go back and, and record a new album and you know time passes and then you're in a different uh, you have a different state of mind I guess and then a different feel and whatever happens happens. Now of course the, the band has also over the years changed members. Uh, you now have Bryce in there and Tanner in there. Um, do they get involved with the writing process and the creation or? Do you and Bjorn sort of take over and say, listen, we've been here since the 90s. We know what we want. Trust us and, you know, we'll... Yeah, we'll... they have not been part of the writing. I mean, they uh, bring their style more live and they do it really well. Well, musically, it's been me and Bjorn. Uh, on this album, it's just been me and Bjorn writing the, the whole thing. And previous one, Nicholas was involved a little bit as well. And, and it's been me and Bjorn since uh, Sounds of the Playground Fading. So, 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 talk to me then uh, about bringing in new members. Is it really just for for the live presentation in terms of having a band out there, or or do you see them down the road getting involved and listening to what they say when it comes to creating new music? Uh, difficult. I mean, who knows what's going to happen, you know, down the line or in the future. But uh, well, I think Bjorn and myself have a pretty good knowledge of where we want to be and where we want to take the Inflamed sound. We've been part of this band for, what, 25 years. Um, and I've done 12 out of 13 albums. Um, so this is where we are right now. And they are very important to us. And I mean, it's, we want a band. We want to be a, a real band touring and play this music. But it's, we just figure out through the years that if everybody's involved, it's just going to be a, a mess with, you know, like too many chefs, you know what I mean? So it's easier if it's me, myself and Bjorn, we had such, we have a good workflow that works really, really well. And we get to the point with what we want pretty quick. So. 
You do. Um, talk to me a little bit about your influences and, and bringing sort of the the old with the new and creating In Flames music. Because on this one, you've got Chris Lord Algi uh, mixing it, who's of course worked with with White Snake and a whole bunch of people. You recently toured with uh, Deep Purple, or at least in Mexico, and of course. You dropped last year the uh, covers EP that had, uh, you know, Nine Inch Nails and Alice in Chains. Uh, talk to me about sort of working within all those different influences and creating something new. Um, to, today, I don't think we draw as much inspiration from these bands that you um, that you mentioned. We do love them dearly, and it's some of the first bands that we heard. I mean, I know Bjorn. His dad is a metalhead, and I think Deep Purple was the very first band he ever heard. Um, so, and, and for me, with the Depeche Mode that we were on the EP, and Nightly Snails, I was in Chains, and other you know, bands like Scorpions and Iron Maiden, and those things. It's, and you I mean heavy metal in general, and the whole wave of new wave of British heavy metal with Priest Maiden and, and Saxon and, and you know that stuff. That was highly influential in the beginning, but. Um, today it's more. It's more. I think we found our own niche, and, and whatever feels good within those realms, it, that's what that what, that is what inspires us. Then probably we can be inspired by things here and there that we are unaware of. Then you know you might have heard or listened to something on your way to the studio, or, or the day you write something, and that inspire you unintentionally. Um, so there's no. Real bands that I can say, oh, that that inspired I I the mask in any way because we just want to be. I I think we found a sound that is in flames and we just try to expand that as far as we can and then make it broad and wide. Yeah, and and it's and then talk to me a little bit about the live presentation because you do have this North American tour coming up. Uh, the band, like I've mentioned just before we started, I've seen you at uh, the Amtelis in Montreal. I've seen you at Heavy Montreal. I've seen you all over the place in Montreal. Uh, just a spectacular live presentation. How important is it for the band uh, moving forward just to have a solid live presentation? Oh, it's, it means, you know, it, it's, it means a lot. I mean... I think I am more, I love being in the studio uh, a lot. I love going into the studio, come, going in with nothing, coming out with something that is complete. And I, I think I can stay there for forever and ever and ever. But I know Bjorn feels like the studio is more like a means to get on the road and out there. So the live side is obviously super important for us. And it's it's for a chance for us to meet our fans and, and, and to celebrate something together and make... Uh, their ticket worth something. I mean, I want people to leave the hall with, with smiles and, and, and just a great feeling of, uh, you know, they escape reality for a, for a short period of time. So the live is definitely important. That's why it's, we've been lucky every time somebody left the band that we got in someone that, you know, filled that spot with, with great value and, and Bright and Tanner. And I mean, these, it's awesome. You know, it's, it's really, really good. It really is. Uh, talk to me about your vocals and your vocal style, because, you know, starting off in 95 or 99, when you're younger and you're screaming and, and it's, it's powerful, it must be great. But as you get older, 
How do you sort of maintain that energy and how do you not lose the voice? Do you sort of have to spend days not talking before you go on tour? Do you do you change the music on Eye of the Mask to soften up the vocals so that it's not as as uh, demanding in a live setting? Um, talk to me about the physicality because we do get older and things do get more difficult. No, I, I, I think I push myself more live than I ever done and that's just the fans that brings that out of me, you know, it's in the studio, you're in front of a dead microphone, and live, you're in front of thousands of fans, uh, and that brings a different energy. Um, and what I do on the record is just something that should play along with the music itself. You know, I, I I I listen to the track, and I think like, okay, what type of, where should I put the vocals on this one? How does it fit? What what kind of emotions am I trying to get across here? You know, and stuff like that. But I I just been interested in the actual voice and how I, how, where I can go with my voice and I went to a vocal coach and he taught me a lot of things and how, how to deal and with it, like not just singing wise, just what you should think about outside of it and like, you know, the worst thing I can do is after a show go to a club where there's a DJ playing and I'm trying to talk over the track, you know, or people are smoking in my face, that, that would be the worst for the next day. That's maybe something I didn't think about in the past. That's something I, I know more more of today. Uh, but it's it's like any instrumentalist. I just want to take my instrument as far as as I can and do what I do. My my technique is extremely homeschooled. Uh, so when I got to my vocal coach, that was the first time I learned anything about any technique. I mean, it, it worked for me so far, and now it's just. You know, I can go higher in range and even lower in range. And I think learning how to sing more clean has even helped my more growly side as well to become clearer and, and, and more... Because yeah. I don't want to have like old school, old school death metal. I still want you to hear all the words, the words I'm trying to pronounce and stuff like that. And I think I, that, that it helped me, you know. So... What I'm understanding then is that for now there's no concern. You you haven't noticed anything as 50 looms down down the road. You're not starting to think, okay, I've got to change how I use this instrument. I mean, if it happens, it happens. Right. I have I have not done that yet. I mean, there's the reason I sing as I do on either mask is not because I got told I had to hold back. I mean, it's it's like it's still very powerful and. Uh, right, and I'm not suggesting otherwise. I'm just asking a general question of because you no, know. No, I know, I know, I know where you're getting at, but it's not. No, I don't. There's no hesitation from my or any signs that I, my voice is getting tired or anything. I, I you know, that day will come eventually, and then we make a decision then. <laughs> and then we make some country albums or something. Uh, you are of course using a former Megadeth guitarist Chris Broderick on the uh, tour. Yeah. Um, talk to me about that choice and and calling him up and because that's an A ringer right there. That's that's not some uh, some schmuck you picked up at a bus stop. He's he's got a good pedi. He's he's got a pedigree. I mean he he rips. I mean talk yeah, to me about him. He's awesome. We've known each other for seventeen years. Uh, he was part of a band called Jag Panzer and we took them out. Um, so we got to know him back then and then we've been keeping in contact back and forth. You know, we meet up here and there. Uh, and when Niklas. Uh, had to stay home. It, it was just in the last 24, 48 hours before we were heading over to America, and it was 
it's like, what do we do? Do we cancel the whole tour? And we were like, nah, we can't do that. And these songs are made to be played by twin guitars, so it's it's a uh, holy shit. Uh, you know, well, <laughs> you call Superman, and then he answered, and uh, we're so happy that he said yes, and he's extremely, extremely good and a fast learner. And uh, since we already knew him you know, on a personal level, we knew he would fit in, you know, socially. So it was, it was. We were we were fortunate that he was free. You are, and then the question is, of course, when Nicholas gets back, do you do you say, hmm, what about three guitars in our band, right? I mean, you you know that's that that's something you might have to to start thinking about. Um, just real quick, and I, and I know you're asked a question many many times, but of course, uh, the fans had a great affinity for uh, Jesper, and we know that he left and stuff. Do you do you still reach out to him once in a while, and? and how do you sort of these years remove measure his contribution to the band? No, his his contribution was enormous. You know, he was the guy that started the band. He was the one that got me into the band, and I'm eternally grateful for that. Um, then it's been pretty well documented what happened through the years with everything, and and uh, you know he's been he went on doing his own thing and he's doing his own projects, and and you know. Yeah, I, I just hope and wish he's happy doing what he's doing. And uh, I mean, in, in the best of worlds, you know, when you start out a band, you never see members changing. I mean, in a perfect world, we who were in there from the beginning would go all the way to the end. And when we all decided it's time to leave, we all step out. But that's not how it works, unfortunately. But I haven't talked to him for 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 some time. And uh, yeah. That's that's that you know, but yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, it, it was it was what it was, and it, and it was great. Now, of course, uh, I the mask is is out on March first. Um, what do you see the the touring cycle? Is it uh, do this until the end of 2019 and get another one out real quick next year, or do you want to take your time with this one and give it a, a regular sort of two-year touring cycle and just let it sort of sit and let the fans sort of deal with it for a couple of years? Or, hey, we got more in us. Let's get right back in there. I definitely feel we have more in us, but that being said, I think all the way... I don't think there will be another one until you know, 21 or something. I, 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 this year we're going to tour, and next year we're going to tour. And I mean, who knows? I mean, this with Ivan Mask it was special because we we were in the middle of the battle cycle, and both myself and Bjorn were like, oh, we feel so great, whatever, let's go back to the studio and record something while well, we feel that way. So who knows? That could happen again. But right now I see myself tour this this year and next year, you know. We don't feel a stress. I mean, we don't have any pressure from record labels or management to record something. We decide when we want to record, and when it happens, it happens. And it has to be from pure joy. You know, it can't be forced or anything. So if that is sooner than later, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, and, and it's great that you've gotten to that position uh, in your career. Now, I know we were only given 15 minutes, so I will say uh, tack. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in Montreal. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, man. Thank you. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Bye. Cheers now. Bye-bye. The Westwood One Podcast Network.